an American research team at Outpost 31 in Antarctica stumbles onto an incredible, life-changing discovery. A colossal spaceship buried in the ice that supposedly crashed on Earth 100,000 years ago. Norwegian team found it first, but somehow they all wound up dead. The ship's lone inhabitant, thought to be long dead and frozen in the ice, wakes up and goes to work. It's some sort of shape-shifting killer that can mimic any living organism down to the molecular level, and it wants to escape the Arctic and get to the rest of the world. The research team grows increasingly paranoid, as they don't know who's the thing and who isn't, in the 1982 body horror masterpiece, The Thing. I'm Connor Izagiri. I'm Caleb Shea. And this is Filmgasm. Welcome to the new and improved Filmgasm podcast. The 80-episode experiment is over, and now we're starting fresh with all the knowledge we've absorbed thus far. This March will be our five-year anniversary. We figured it was time to refocus what we wanted this podcast to be, prioritize the weird shit, and base the next phase of the show around the four corners of genre movies, horror, action, sci-fi, and fantasy. Every film we talk about on the Wednesday main show will be one of those four genres. We'll continue doing first thoughts on Mondays whenever there's a new release we want to talk about. And some Fridays, we'll have Filmgasm bonus episodes whenever we feel like doing a countdown, a draft, a filmmaker spotlight, or some other wacky fun shit we haven't thought of yet. So, man, what do you think of the new direction of the show? I'm excited. I think issues we've had is kind of like wanting to do too much. Yeah. Um, put add too much to our plates because I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we're not this. We all have jobs outside of this. We all have um things we got to do outside of this. So we just don't have the time. You know, time's always your 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 greatest enemy in life, um, especially as you get older. Um. And so I think scaling it down to a consistency of just the Wednesday and kind of going back to the roots of what we want to do with this, where we focus on genre something that to this day going, I mean, when this comes out now, as we're recording, when this comes out, it'll be 2024, you know, genre that still kind of gets like kind of not the recognition it really deserves, except in very rare cases. Um, and I won't say like in case of like Lord of the Rings, um, I don't only think that because I know you guys recently did a draft on that. So that one just popped in my head. Um, but, um, kind of going back to those roots, having just a consistent Wednesday show and then Monday and Friday just mean like when we want. And that's the thing I think is going to help us out, both keep it fun. Like we're not getting bogged down and it's, this is work. Um, we already have that to worry about in our personal life. Um, but it's, it's going to keep it fun. It's going to keep it fresh. And I think be a good thing for us going forward. Yeah, so do I. I want to basically turn the Wednesday show into a highly researched, thoroughly prepared, epic show every week. And I feel like I think we all agree the genre films are the most fun to talk about, the most fun to research, always have a cool story behind them. And I just think that's where we need to be. I think that's a good place to to be for this show. And uh, I'm excited to kind of start fresh. You know, this is episode one of this next phase of what we've been doing. So, you know, we're starting wiping the clean, wiping the slate clean here and just kind of going forward, taking it week by week, picking the movies more about more from just like, Oh, that sounds fun. As opposed to we have to do this this week because of that. It's more just like, let's fucking do, you know, 
fucking the thing. Why not? Let's do that. Next week, it could be something else crazy. And I next week's going to be fun. They're all going to be fun. And that's what I want to do. Yeah, yeah, I agreed. I'm, I'm looking forward to next week. I know you and me have been having to do... Uh, not that we weren't going to do it anyway. This is every like film lover's in time where you cram in the last few years' films to give you guys a hint of what we're doing. Um, so we're, we were already going to do that anyway, but now obviously this is the impetus for what we're doing next week. So it's like, oh shit, let me make sure I get what I can in and, um, yeah. before we do that episode. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, it allows more freedom, more fun. Um, especially, at, at, you know, if we, it sounds like we're not going to worry about anniversaries as much, not that those aren't fun to do, but just a lot more freedom with what we put on the schedule. Um, yeah. Going forward. And of course, you know, we'll tie Wednesday into, you know, releases sometimes like, you know, when, when Dune part two comes out, I'm sure we'll end up doing uh Villeneuve's first Dune film. I know when Ghostbusters Frozen Empire comes out, we're going to do a Ghostbusters film of some kind. So that stuff will still happen, but largely it's going to be just, you know, what do you feel like doing next week? I don't know. Let's do this fucking Rodriguez movie. All right, sure. It's, it's going to be that for the most part. Which is cool because that's what we were doing when we first started this back in 2019. It was it was just me for a while, and then Austin came in, and we just kind of picked them week by week. Like, like, oh, that's that'd be fun to talk about, or oh, I've never seen that, or oh, this is cool. And I miss that. You know, I feel like we've gotten a little too, I don't know, bogged down in the semantics, and I want to kind of get away from that and just go back to this being a weekly fun thing I get to do with my friends. Yeah. It- Especially when, like, you know, with stuff that, you know, I we both kind of talked about uh, offline, but, you know, the year wasn't kind to you and me no. or to or for various different various for various different reasons um, that I really don't want to share on, you know, recording. Um, no offense to any fans we have out there. Um, but my friends know, and that's all that fucking matters. So um, friends and family know that's all you need to know. Um, and that's a direct shot at those of you who feel the need to you know everything scream seven fans oh. um yeah <laughs> if you know you know what i'm we know what i'm referencing there's um, one we're not going to be able to do an anniversary episode on thank you so much god damn it yeah that that was a nice shade to those on twitter who felt the need to attack a director for no good reason um but uh you know it, it was a rough year in a way and the, the podcast should feel like an escape. Just like when I watch films, it's an escape, good or bad, you know, when it comes to a film. Sometimes the bad films that I don't enjoy can be escapes in their own interesting ways. Um, but just like when I watch a film or when I play a game or, you know, I'm, you know, reading my comics or books or whatever, you know, or listen to my music, it's an escape. And that's what the podcast should feel like. A fun thing that lets me escape my reality. Um, you know, I have hopes 2024 will be a better year for me. You know, obviously there's a there's a very big life change. Again, I'm not sharing on here, you know, about it. Big life change is kind of happening for me in a in a in a job uh related sort of way that you know will obviously kind of rack my nervousness up. But again, that's where we're coming to this will be my escape and fun as it should be. Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm you know, I've been in a transitional period for a while now, still kind of unsure of what I want to do in life. And I, you know, just I need it's nice to have some assurance of something to look forward to. And that's, that's what I'm viewing this as is, you know, Oh, I get to talk about this this week, or I get to talk about that this week while I can just ignore the 
life shit that's constantly swirling around me for a couple hours. Yeah. Um, no. Well, with that, we wanted to start things off with one of our collective favorites, a film that's universally beloved by the horror community and has so much to say. It didn't take us long to choose The Thing, the eighth film directed by John Carpenter and, as Carpenter calls it, his strongest movie. So before we get into it, what's your history with The Thing? How did this movie first come into your life? Oh, dude, this was like, um, when I was getting into horror films, this was just the one you always heard about, right? The Thing was like one of those heavy hairs you hear about, like, oh, you want to see this? My dad was a fan of it. My dad hyped it up to me. And, you know, he's like, but it was the, you know, with the caviar of like, yeah, wait till you're older because of, you know, the, the violence in the movie, um, um, the gore and the, you know, the, the effects and stuff like that. But it, you know, so it's always that like like many horror films you have when you're first getting into it and you, you have those heavy hitters you hear about. It was there and it was there before I really knew anything about John Carpenter, his his style, his, you know, his 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 history as a director. I just heard about like, oh, this is this really good film with Kurt Russell and it's a really good movie. You're like it. You're like horror. That when I did finally get the chance to watch it, I think we rented it or like it was on TV and my dad was like, OK, you know, what? you're old enough. You're good. Let's watch it. I instantly fell in love, instantly fell in love with it. And, you know, it was around the time I was discovering Carpenter in general. So, you know, I was looking into Halloween and he's came from New York. So I'm pretty, you know, I was really starting to kind of dig into him. And I just, as soon as I watched this, I, I fuck, it was just like a love at first sight. What a movie, you know, it was just like, Oh my God, this is awesome. What is this movie? And I haven't looked back. I, I very much agree with Carpenter's statement. I do think it's his strongest film and a lot of people agree. I mean, this is for a lot of people considered his best film more so than Halloween. Um, and it, it's hard to pick from this era. Cause like to me, seventies and eighties is like just peak Carpenter. Like he just was hitting every single time. Um, so it, it, it it's a, in a strong sea of films, this this one has always kind of stood out in the pack and, it, and again it's it's crazy because that sea is strong you know i mean you got they live you got the fog you got halloween i saw on precinct 13 escape from new york big trouble in little china like you know the the hits just kept on coming but this i i see why he says that and i get why it has the status it has and thankfully has gained the status it has as what we'll get into i'll save it for when we get into the history of this film but for those who know about its initial um, release and reception. Oh yeah, fuck you, ET. But we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> I'll say it. More people talk about the thing than ET. I'll say it. No offense, to Spielberg. <laughs> saying. Uh, yeah, the thing. This is you know, I believe it's the highest rated horror movie on Letterboxd, which is amazing. Uh, and well deserved. Um, I saw this movie for the first time when I was about eleven or twelve. Uh, I watched it with my parents who were gradually starting to introduce me to more mature stuff. And uh, <laughs> the uh, they, they got their VHS and they put it in the player. We started watching the thing and I was kind of like, all right, this is kind of boring. You know, I was 11. I didn't know. I didn't know what ambiance was. I didn't know that the dog wasn't a dog. I was just like, why? Why is this so cool? And then shit started happening, and I remember my mom immediately throwing her hand on my face so I couldn't see the dog ripped open, and I watched most of the thing's best scenes through my mom's hand. 
because awesome. she realized very quickly he's too young for this. But instead of turning it off or telling me to leave, she just put her hand over my head and they kept watching it. So, so I heard a lot of the nightmarish noises of the thing and my imagination created a much worse situation than what was happening on screen, which did not help the nightmares. <laughs> so I'm sure later on I, I found it on my own and I watched it and I was like, oh, this is fucking awesome. And that was probably around the time that my uncle Sean was kind of getting me into Carpenter. He showed me Escape from New York and Assault in Precinct 13 and They Live. And I was like, this guy fucking rocks. And I never left that stance. I still think Carpenter is one of the greatest filmmakers America's ever produced. Never got his due. To this day, he deserves like, praise on the same level as guys like Spielberg and Coppola and Scorsese, but never got it. I stand by the fact that as a, as a horror director, he has, he is rightfully praised. He has gotten all the love and attention he deserves in horror on a mainstream side of things, if you will. And like, yes, your bigger scope, casual audience, he is so underappreciated. And, you know, you, you can make that argument that the nineties and two thousands were as kind to him directing wise. I I blame a lot more of the studio system around that time and how they were treating him. Um, and not, and I'm sorry, I don't know any director that has like a flawless track record. And yes, I know people are going to come at me at Tarantino, even him. Um, sorry, guys, not a single director, right? Now, moving on. <laughs> I will, I will say there is one director who does have a completely flawless theatrical run, and that is Kinka Usher. Did he do one movie? He directed Mystery Men and then he bounced. So yes, okay. Multiple film directors here. <laughs> he did it. And he left. Uh, no, you know they very rarely have perfect track records. Okay. Again, you look at what he came out with in the seventies and what he came out with in the eighties. Yes, this guy needs to be on the same level of people like Tarantino and Spielberg and Scorsese. What what puts Carpenter like, you know, above the rest for me really is like. When he hit, like for any filmmaker in the 80s to make a movie like The Thing, that could define their entire career. Like that is, that's it. But he has a lot of those. He's got several movies that are career defining. And he kept going. Like the guy just, he had an eye. And not just for, you know, not just for you know filmmaking, but for music, for casting, for everything. The guy was just on point. And I say was, because he's, He's all but retired from filmmaking. He's just being a rock star now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and like, and I'll say it for those who, if you, you know, to so keep furthering this argument that he needs to be rightfully much more praised than he he is. And granted, I know Connor himself probably at this point doesn't really care. So he says he's retired. He's focused on music. Yeah, still fun to talk about though. Um, and I get, I do get Carpenter stance a lot when I hear him in interviews. Like people can say he's grumpy, but I get where he's coming from in a lot of. Um, his interviews and his stance on stuff, I understand. Yeah, his um, whole career from the like from Hollywood has basically been, "What have you done for me lately?" And that's such horseshit. A guy who made films like that should get, you know, to be able to write his own ticket in Hollywood. But they just consistently kept screwing him. And I totally get why he hates the whole industry. Like I would too if I'd been, you know, if I had so many opportunities ripped away from me just because, you know, I was an easy mark or so they thought. Yeah, and then you had the fact that you know he lost Deborah Hill, he was very close to. Um, a lot of people don't realize how 
good of friends they were. I believe they were dating at one point. Um, they were very close. You know, he lost her. That that hurt. That hurt him a lot more. I think people realize um, that he did just get to the point, like you said, where he was like, you know what? I have the cloud enough. He's still making paychecks off of like off his films from the seventies and eighties, especially Halloween. He's good. Um, but to for like this whole thing that like he should be on the same discussion. Okay, let's take someone like Spielberg. As far as I'm concerned, Spielberg's heyday was the 80s and the 90s. And after that, I haven't really given a whole lot of shit about a lot of his recent films. And again, and not saying he's done bad films at all, but I do think that once Spielberg focused on chasing that Oscar high constantly, I wasn't getting as entertaining films from him. So it's like, okay, you have someone like Spielberg who is still working, but I haven't really liked his recent output. Whereas Carpenter, I like most of his output. See, that's how I felt about Scorsese until this until this past year with Killers of the Flower Moon. And then I'm like, okay, this guy's still got something to say. So I'm hoping that mm. we get a little bit more of a, you know, more exciting films from him. Uh I'd yeah. love to see Wait, like I said, it's not me. Yeah, go ahead. It, it's not it's sorry, it's not me trying like, saying these directors are bad. Like, don't I don't don't come at me with pitchforks, people. I'm not saying I like Spielberg for, still. Okay. He's a he's, he has his status for a reason. I'm just saying, like, it, it's just so it's an injustice to me because, like, Carpenter should be on that level when he has probably the same type of, like, career path that these guys have where they had their heyday and then the recent output isn't as good to me. They get lucky, like I said, Scorsese came make strong with Kills of the Father Moon, and I did quite enjoy that. Um, but they're, you know, these these directors we rightfully praise, they're just as hit, as, hit, hit and miss. Carpenter had his heyday. He got hit and miss for a bit, yes. And then he just said, hey, I'm done and retired on out. Yeah. And like you said, no one's got a flawless run. But to me, like when you hit like Carpenter hits, you've entered the conversation. And I I think the mainstream like favorites list should include John Carpenter. Uh, but, you know, I, yeah, I absolutely always believe that. Well, so we have some discussion questions. Uh, this is already going so well. My question to you, The Thing is widely considered to be one of the greatest horror remakes of all time. So much so that a lot of people don't actually know this is a remake. So in your opinion, what are some other incredible or at least acceptable horror remakes? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, David Cronenberg's The Fly. Yeah, that's kind of um, where I would go to first. Like The Fly and The Thing are probably for, the apex of horror remakes. Yeah, I know a lot of people would say The Blob. From the 80s, I have not seen the 80s blob, so I cannot comment on that one myself. That's why I'm not going to say it. Um, One, I don't think people think of enough, and it's from that era that everyone hated so much, the 2000s horror remake craze. And I'm saying this as someone who has been a lifelong fan of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and thinks the original is the greatest horror film ever made. But the remake is goddamn good, and I do think it enters conversation. I think the remake is a solid fucking movie that comes actually really fucking close. It comes close. Yeah, I know you have a lot of fervor for that one, and it is a fun watch. It's a good, it's a good double feature. You know, seventy four and two thousand three. When you make a movie that great in nineteen seventy four, you could make a million sequels. Nothing's going to top that shit. But there are some. That's a that's one that does come close. It come, and well, and to me, what a lot of these do, they understand what made the original great, or why people love it. And you know, obviously, you can kind of, in the case of the fly and thing from the reward, you can have your opinion because it's from a very different era of film, obviously. But 
those people in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like they honored what made those original films work, but then found a way to update that for an at the time modern audience without being disrespectful, without saying, well, we can do it better. It was no, they did it. How do we modernize this for a today audience by still honoring it? One thing that like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake did was they got Daniel Poor, who had done the cinematography for the original film. He did the cinematography for the remake as well. A lot of people don't know that they've got the same cinema. Yeah, they got the same cinematographer, which is why the the remake actually looks so goddamn good. Because even he was like, well, and he talked about it on on I think the movie crypts. Well, he was like, you know, the big challenge was like, how do I differentiate this from the original? Like, I don't, I don't want to do the same thing. You know, I need to make it different. And they they figured it out. Um, that's I think when like remakes really work. There is something that can be said for a remake that does try to do things differently. And I, cause you know, obviously flying thing are quite different from the original films, but again, even though they go a different route, they're made by filmmakers that love that original film and said, how do we, how can we do this different without, you know, desecrating the original that, that, that same mindset still there. They just figured out how to make it different in a way that still works. I think the biggest thing that sets those kinds of remakes apart from like your, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street 2010s is you have somebody who is a fan of the film they're adapting. You need that. You need somebody behind the chair who cares about where this is coming from. Like Carpenter, The Thing from Another World is one of his favorite movies. He loves that movie to death. And mm-hmm. when he got this job, he was like, I am so excited to go back to the roots of this story and tell my own version. That's what you want. That's how these movies end up being amazing. So, yeah, I think, you know, for, yeah, the fandom is is paramount. Yeah, another one from the 2000, and look, for we have our fans, I am 31 years old. I was a teenager in this time, so yes, I have a little bit more love than most people for this era, because it's what I grew up on, okay? Sorry, it is what it is. Um, But the Hills Have Eyes remake. Alexandra Aja did a fucking phenomenal. That's another one that comes. Actually, I'll say it. I, and it's probably because I saw the remake first. I do think the remake's better. I do. I know. I I love Russ Craven. I do. But I do think the remake's better. But again, Aja was a fan. They worked with Russ Craven. He was a. It's a known fact. He was a producer on that in the Last House remake. He was heavily involved with. Um. So they were still running things by him. He told him, "Hey, make it yours. Make it your movie." but they were so very respectful and stuff about making sure he was still involved and still there. You know, he gave him the go ahead, Hey, make your movie. And they made a fucking good film out of it. Like the remake of Hills of Eyes fucking kicks ass, man. Like it goes, I mean, it's very of its era, but it goes for your juggler and doesn't stop until the credits roll. I fucking love that remake. Yeah. It's been a while since I saw the remake and I'm surprised that in five years of podcasting, we never touched the Hills have eyes. Like we came close. Oh yeah, we did. I don't have to rectify that one day. Cause I actually really fucking love that remake. Yeah. Um, one, one horror, remake, horror remake that I really like that I feel like does not get enough credit is the 1999 remake of house on haunted Hill. I actually quite enjoy that one. That movie's creepy as shit. And it takes the original movie, which I thought was kind of goofy, and flips it. In the original movie, they're all led to believe this is real, but the twist is it's fake. And in the remake, they're all led to believe it's fake, but the twist is it's real. 
And I thought that was mm-hmm. very clever. And I love the uh, Jeffrey Rush's nods to Vincent Price. The ghosts are terrifying. Jeffrey Combs is a freaky villain in that movie. Like it works. I have a lot of uh, a lot of love for that movie. I also love it. It's like the one movie my mother will never watch because the ghosts scared her so bad back in 99. She has yet to watch that movie again. Oh. Dude, that was when, like, for some reason, they kept making the ghosts do that weird effect in all the horror films that were coming out. Like, Fear.com oh, did it. Freaky. That one did it. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I've always actually really liked that remake. I've, I've quite enjoyed it. Um, it's just so over the top, campy, and like goofy and like frightening and like all at once. It's like, it's, it's, it just shouldn't yeah. work, but it does. That scene um, where like one of the characters is like looking through the basement and she sees like the ghosts of the doctors doing surgery through the camera. But she can't see it with the naked eye. They all look at her. (laughs) God, just talking about it. I used to to freak me out, man. Um, One, you're not going great, man, because I know you don't even like the franchise as a remake of. And a lot of fans like to share on it. But actually, I'll say it. I like the Friday 13th remake. All the issues that like longtime fans had of it. I'm like, shut the hell up. The whole thing with Trent being a douchebag, yeah, it's not the first douchebag we've had in the movie series. Let's be honest. And I still laugh hysterically at like the dumb comments that come out during his sex scene. <laughs> like they're fucking so dumb and hysterical. Um, the whole thing about Jason having tunnels, I'm like, who gives a shit? Like, it's not the most outlandish thing this franchise has done. The thing where like people were like, Oh, well, he wanna keep someone captive. I'm like, this franchise has already established that if you they remind him of his mother, he doesn't harm them. So yes, that makes sense too. Like I just refute all the stuff that people say. I'm like, no, it's it's a fucking Friday Thirteenth film that works. My problem with Friday the Thirteenth two thousand nine is that it makes no fucking sense whatsoever. It opens. None of the movies do. Yeah, but this especially is like going out of its way to just completely ignore important shit. Like the it opens with Pamela getting decapitated because she's avenging the death of her son Jason. You know, we get that. She gets decapitated, and who should fucking wander out of the woods but Jason Voorhees? He's not dead. Well, I mean, it's the same. It's the same thing in the original when like they made the sequel and they were like, "Wait, Jason's dead," and they went, "No one's gonna give a shit." Yeah, but this one, so they the just, sequel. This was it. the opening ten minutes of the movie. Like her whole motivation makes no sense if her baby boy is in the woods waiting for her. Well, she probably didn't know he was alive. So Jason, like five year old Jason, has just been living by himself as a yep. baby in the woods. Yes. You don't see a problem with this? No, because it's a fucking horror film about some deformed kid that was able to survive in the woods and then just mercilessly slaughter people. What? Whatever. I, I don't have the same blind love for Friday the 13th as, as you do. I don't really like any of them. No, it's, it's called I Just Want Him to Kill People and that's what I get. I want to watch Douchebags party it up, have sex, and then get slaughtered. Good for you. You got, like, what? 12 of them? Yeah. 12 with now it being out of court, potential for a 13th, because um, it seems like Sean Cunningham is s- smelling the dollar signs because of the TV show. And he's like, oh, wait, I can make money if I just come out with a movie. Yeah, yeah, no shit. It's the 13th one. It better be fucking spectacular. Uh, they have so they have these uh there's the never hike alone films on youtube and those are actually really fucking good they're fan films but they're really good that's cool um all right the last horror remake i want to spotlight is 2020's the invisible man 
Oh, yeah, that was an exceptional one. Yeah, the last real big hit at theaters before COVID knocked out the film industry for a while. Uh, what a fantastic psychological thriller and just a movie that really builds atmosphere and tension in scenes he might not even be in, but you just feel that he's there. That was so smart. Um, yeah. And James Warren did the smart thing of framing shots as if there's always two people in the shot. Because he talked about that. He said, if you pay attention, he frames so many of his shots to look like there could be two people in it to add to what you're talking about, to give you that sense of like, is he there? Once you know you get the reveal that he's always there. So he, he purposely frames shots in a way to pull that effect off. Did you say James Wan? Did I say James? Label now. God damn it. Just make it, just helping out. Thanks. I thought I said Lewin L, but yeah, Lewin L. My bad. He he purposely frame shots that way, um, to always make it seem like he's there. So then you're on the edge of like, oh shit, is he there? Is he not there? Well, the original Invisible Man, I think, is still a great thriller and just a very fun lesson in like, you know, a man's descent into madness. We did it uh, on one of our anniversary episodes a few months ago, and just had a blast talking about that movie. The remake isn't a, you know, a shot for shot. It's something new. You know, it's our hero is a abuse survivor trying to move past her psychotic ex who faked his own death just to screw with her again. It's, it's really twisted. It's got one of the greatest shock moments in recent horror when, you know, the, the dinner scene, oh, the knife scene. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Well, no. and are, are shocking that like they were no, a guy, came up with this like storyline and it didn't feel disingenuous or anything. Like it, it was a very timely thing that he pulled off really well, but again, it's like we talked about, it was a good remake. Cause he's a fan that said, how do I modernize this for today? Cause we can't, I remember reading an interview. He was like, yeah, we can't just have him be a mad scientist. That's not going to work in 20, in like 2020 when it came out, it's yep. like, no one's going to believe that we'll get laughed at. Yeah, I thought the the direction he took, it made it seem real, like that could happen. You know, some nut job with, you know, some skills in optics could conceivably make something like that. Like that doesn't sound insane anymore, which is even scarier. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the Invisible Man yeah, is the no, only one of the original Universal Monsters who could fucking exist. Yeah, and you know what's crazy about that remake? That was after like Universal made the big deal about like we are not making these horror films because it doesn't make money out of the box office and like their mummy action film that didn't Sobern and Fraser uh flopped, but then this the horror film was a huge hit before COVID took over. Um so it was like ah peace the resistance. Um but uh because yeah, um, you know again, like the key ingredients of this is you get filmmakers that our fans are at least care, even if they can kind of say like, look, the, the original film doesn't may not, doesn't hold up, but we can do something with this. Um, I think that's why I'm so excited for Robert Eggers, Nosferatu two coming out, uh, December of 2024. Yeah. He is very clear. He's a fan of the original film, which is a great film. I love Nosferatu. two. So I know, okay. I already like his work. His three films prior to this, more people should have seen the Northman. Just saying. Um, but he's a fan. So I'm like, okay, I like his stuff. He is clearly a fan. This is gonna be something special when it comes out. And based off the set photos they've released so far, it's gonna be something really fucking special. Um it really is the opposite end of that, and we, yeah, the, the opposite side of that, you mentioned it with Nightmare, right? 
is when you do get those remakes like Nightmare on Elm Street 2010 where they didn't give a shit. It was like, you know, it's a very known fact that they did not get Craven's input on that movie. Um, They were like, no, we can do it. It's fine. We don't need his input. He even talked about how pissed off he was about that because it's a fucking Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, And then we saw in the final product what happens when you get those people that just they don't care. It's just, hey, we're going to do it and we're going to do it better. It's like, well, no, you're not with that attitude. And no one's going to care. Yeah, I agree. Felt the same way about the uh, 2015 Poltergeist remake. God, what a train wreck that was. Oh, God. Let's um, not do that thing. I'm super psyched about Nosferatu, though. The only question I've got in my head is, like, did that week, do we do Murnau or do we do Herzog? I don't know. Oh, that's tough, because I've seen both, and they're both really, really good. My right now I'm I'm leaning towards Herzog because I haven't seen that yet and I'd like an excuse. Yeah. I mean at least now we're not debating between that or the new poem movie because I got taken off the slot. Yeah. That sucks. Well, oh, that was a good good discussion there. Yes. And I also have a question. So that's what we do now. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> uh no, mine is in relation to the fact that there's like three versions of this film, but only one's really so the test time. This is no offense, like the Howard Hawks original. Um, why do you think Carpenter's is the one that has like stood the test of time? Why do you think he's the one that's gotten this the best and made the film that stood the test of time for the era two? Two words Rob Botine. That guy had. A vision mountain of a man, Jesus. Yeah. That that huge dude understood the fucking assignment. So in the fifties, like the original story, who goes there, which we're going to talk about in a minute here, is all about a biological organism that can mimic anything it touches. That was the original idea. The fifties version decided, no, we want Frankenstein and communism. So. Obviously, you know, that kind of creature was pretty impossible to put on camera in the 50s. The 80s roll around. Carpenter wants to go back to basics. He wants to take the story and make that. Rob Bottin comes along and is like, all right, let me show you some sketches. And the idea that this thing could be anything, it could create, it could make any kind of organic freak it needed for the moment. And they took that to heart and they gave us something we had never seen before. This was freakish body horror unlike anything that's ever that had been that had come out to that point to the like it was up to the point where like like you told me the actors involved had trouble getting work afterwards because they were so associated with this freaky movie and that's why this one stands the test of times because it's still you know what 40 50, 40 years later 40 something years later still yeah for something still looks incredible it's the gold standard the 2011 one decided to nix the the um practical effects and, you know douse it in shitty cgi and you know the product speaks for itself i've seen that shit a hundred times i saw that shit on the cw it doesn't look good it looks cheap carpenter looks like they tried they wanted they had a vision they decided to make it happen using practical effects and people who cared and that's why this works that's why it still works if they do another one I, I and I don't see them. I don't see them ever. I don't see anybody else ever getting this right. 
I'm I'm with you. I think I think it's I think it's a robber team for sure. Like those effects, Dan. It's a, it is there's a reason this film is known for its practical effects above all else. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure David Cronenberg was like hard the whole movie. Like, why haven't I done any of this yet? You you show me <laughs> another movie where a guy has a heart attack, another guy's defibbing him, his chest opens up, eats the other guy's arms, then his head peels off and grows spider legs and walks around. You show me another movie anywhere that gives me anything remotely close to that, as good as it looks in this. Yeah, fair enough. I was gonna say thing twenty eleven, but it just doesn't look as good. Um uh but the other thing um I want to mention, I think that's helped make us to the test of time is the carpenter of it all. And that is I know I'm talking about the the score because that's it's mostly Ennio Morricone who but Carpenter I know did some stuff himself to like pad it out a bit better. Because yeah, I know he talked about that on the in the behind the scenes. Um I'm talking about like the characters and the paranoia, something that is supposed to be apparently evident in the story that only this one film ever got right you feel the paranoia you feel the distrust you actually feel like oh shit who could it be you never feel that in the other versions of this film nope yeah i i love that and that that comes a lot out of uh bill lancaster's screenplay which we'll talk about as well uh but you know obviously you know carpenter shot it in a way where like we don't know I've seen this movie a hundred times. There's times where I fucking forget (laughs) like who here, who here is the thing. I, I forget sometimes. I I was like, I love watching on rewatches and trying to see like when people get infected. Cause sometimes they smartly don't always show you when someone gets infected. So you're just like, wait, like when, you know, the scene when uh, I think it's Nulls gets it when they're tied to the chair. I remember saying going, when the fuck did he get like infected? I'm like, I don't recall. I was like, but then again, that's why it works because um, something that's I think more an issue with today's filmmaking. Them need to show, show. Look at you, extras believer. Show, 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 show everything so the audience isn't even remotely confused. This film says no. Don't show everything. We need them to be as paranoid as the characters are. We need them to be wondering who the fuck it could be. So don't show when everyone gets infected. Just sit there, have them go. Who the hell is it now? Yeah. Well, Carpenter intended this to be part one of a thematic trilogy that he did called the Apocalypse Trilogy, followed by Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. And this was his take on, like, as he said in the, in the documentary we watched, he, like, the the end of the world comes from within. You know, there's this bleak aspect to the film where, like, it feels like the end of days. It really does feel like they lost. And you can't destroy this thing. Like you can't beat something this powerful. And that vibe is all over this movie. This, this does not have a happy ending. This is not a Hollywood glamorizing, you know, happy ending movie. And I think that's why a big part of why it failed because people were like, that's it. What? Like, you know, 1982 people were like, that's fucking depressing. They both die. Shit. (laughs) And this thing probably gets away. Yeah. I mean, there's, they did a video. Yeah, whoever, whoever, hmm? I was like, whoever got infected, you know, that's the person that I got probably rescued in the thing got out of the Antarctic. Yeah, they did a video game sequel on the PlayStation 2 that I have, but I haven't played it yet, where apparently it is really good. Apparently, McCready was the thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, cool shit. But yeah, it's uh, 
this is unique. This is a, a snapshot in time kind of movie where it had the right director, the right screenwriter, the right cast, the right special effects guy, the right cinematographer, and everything worked the way it was supposed to. And we got the product that everybody wanted to make. And that does not happen a lot in Hollywood. Some There's always some shit that goes down where it's somebody had to you know, work with the second choice or something, but this was, this was what it was supposed to be. And mm. it's, the, I'd, I'd argue that of all the films Carpenter's made, this is the one he's going to be remembered for. Specifically him. I'd make that argument too. Yeah. I'd make that argument too. This would be the one, I don't like people want to go to Halloween, but I think because of the franchise that that became. Yeah. It's more known as a franchise now. And again, I, I personally, I mean, the originals in my, when I rank that franchise, always in my top of the franchise is the original. Yeah. Um, and I do think it's a good Carpenter film. But the thing, they've had two other shots at it. I mean, the one prior, obviously, the very original, and then the 2011 one. But this one has always been better for everyone. This is the one that has stood the test of time. Well, I definitely think that with Halloween, Michael Myers has outlasted carpenter's involvement with the franchise like the first one's very much his the second one kind of the third one kind of but then it's just like it's not his anymore the thing is wholly yeah, yes yeah about so he was i mean he was pretty much checked out mentally for two and three well two he was a little bit back on board with three and what he wanted to do with it but then after that he was like just completely gone and just like as he says i hold my hand out and i'm paid and a check appears so hey good for him <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd find I'd consider it a personal achievement if I created something as iconic as Michael Myers and then just let it ride. <laughs> let it ride. And you still get like, in his case, great royalty checks still on that. Um, yeah. Every time you buy a silver shamrock novelty thing from Spirit Halloween, he gets a piece. <laughs> yes. And then he he's finally got involved with the recent. Well. He was the best parts of this recent trilogy. Um, David Gordon Green, you were not. Uh, you just got uninvited so to the barbecue, Dave. <laughs> yeah, you're not in the horror family barbecue anymore, Dave. It's it's it's, it's okay. Um, but yeah, no, I think this will be um, what he is. Remember, for I, I do agree with a lot of people that I do think this is hands down his his masterpiece. I very much think it's masterpiece. Um, full disclosure, I actually have not seen the other two films in this thematic trilogy, but I'm going to fix that because when his birthday comes around, guess who does a sell every year? Screen Factory. And guess who has those two films still? Screen Factory. So I'm just going to fucking mind by them and get those watched. I got to pick up in the mouth of madness, but I did find Prince of Darkness at a thrift store. So that was exciting. Um, they're both okay. I think they were they warrant repeated viewings. I've only seen both once, so I want to give. I meant to do Prince of Darkness on the podcast last year, but we decided to change things up. So this year we'll probably Prince of Darkness will happen this year. Yeah, I'm looking forward to watching both. I've, you know, those are the last two kind of my blind spot for like his his heyday years. After that, like obviously, I have not seen a lot of his like 90s and 2000s stuff, mostly because I just don't want to solely let legacy. <laughs> I think I've seen me, Ghost of Mars more than I should. <laughs> I've seen I need to see vampires. And I need to see he did a TV movie in the 70s called Someone's Watching Me. I got to see that. And uh, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, I think I think that would that would be that would be the end of my Carpenter adventure. 
Yeah. And the ward, if you haven't seen that yet. I have seen Amber that. Heard that was, that was, that was horseshit. The ward was horseshit. <laughs> Fair I enough. Think, I think I opened my review of that with, oh, how the mighty have fallen. God. Like, I can't believe this is the same guy. Oh. Well, anyway. <laughs> All right. Let's get into the nitty gritty of this podcast. So our main sources for the film's production history are featurettes and interviews that come from the Shout Factory 4K and Blu-ray edition of The Thing, as well as the 1998 documentary The Thing, Terror Takes Shape, also available on that Blu-ray and on YouTube in its entirety. I was very happy when I found out about that doc. It was very helpful. Super helpful. So The Thing began life as the novella Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr., which was first published in the August 1938 issue of Astounding Science Fiction magazine under Campbell's pen name, Don A. Stewart. This dude, in 1938, was conceiving of a of a story like this. That's, in, that's amazing to me. That predates the Cold mm-hmm. War. That predates World War II. <laughs> like, yeah, this, like, this, the invisible enemy type of storyline that didn't even really gain traction until the Cold War. Yeah, because now everyone was like, you know, better red than dead and all that shit. But, I mean, this guy was ahead of his time. I That's amazing to me. Uh, an extended novel-length version of the story, titled Frozen Hell, was published in 2019 after it was discovered among some of Campbell's papers and notes. So there's a longer version of this. I'd love to get a hold of that. It's, uh, it is luckily easy to purchase. I looked on Amazon. It's, it's, it's readily available. It's only got a print or anything. You can get a paperback still. I intend, I intend to once I have money. I know. I'm just letting you know, it is not out of print. Luckily it is readily available. And, uh, the frozen help. If you do want to read who goes there, um, you can find it. If you just Google who goes there by John Campbell, uh, the full story is available free online. That's how I read it. And uh, I hate to say it, but um, it's it's not it's not that it's not that great. <laughs> um, and th- there's just a lot of characters. Uh, it's mostly them just kind of like, well, maybe this creature can read minds. Well, maybe this creature can mimic genetic material. Like it's all them kind of just guessing. They don't really know anything about the creature, but they're on they're on point every time with those guesses. Uh yeah, it's just it's it's about 76 pages long and it could have been 30. All right. Well, I did not have I did not have time to read it, so I'll if I ever do, I'll just do the frozen hell and hope that that's a, a better edition since it's more fleshed out. Probably was. Probably was. But, yeah. Um, I mean, it sounds like it was a, a victim of its time in that regard. Um, when it came out, and I remember when we were doing the, when I was doing the bonus features, they kind of said the same thing with the when they were doing the script for the '80s thing. They were kind of like, "Yeah, it's not a very good story, but the idea of what's there is is good to make something out of." I I found that hilarious, especially f- coming from Bill Lancaster, who's like, "Yeah, the story's not great, but you know, I I found something in there, so I was able to make this." And I'm thinking like. You're hired to adapt a, a story you don't even care for. How do you how do you find this in in that? You know, like I, I, that's admirable. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's you know, it shows you sometimes like power of creativity and why you know we had a certain sh- two strikes this year because AI would have just fucking regurgitated this shit, but a human 
was they able to be like, you know, not a very good story, but there's something here I can do with this and and make the script that they make yeah. out of it. Absolutely. So the story was first adapted in 1951 as the film The Thing from Another World. The story was then reprinted with this title to try to sell more versions of that story. It was directed by Christian Nyby, mm-hmm. I believe, with some considerable help from Howard Hawks, who produced it and also snuck in from time to time to film it, but due to some uh, union shit, could not officially direct the movie. So he just would sneak in and be like, let me here, <laughs> let me show you how to hold the camera for the whole day. <laughs> so basically, Howard Hawks directed this movie. In this case, unlike the Poltergeist thing, that shouldn't be a debate. Howard Hawks probably directed this movie. Probably, yeah. He's He gets more credit for this than you'd think. Uh, the film very loosely adapts the story, opting instead for a tall, lumbering Frankenstein-esque monster instead of the nearly impossible microorganism shapeshifter from Campbell's story. Obviously, this was 1951. You know, special effects were were difficult then. You know, not saying they're easy now, but like back then it was basically like, you know, guy in a costume was the best you could do. Yeah. I mean, they, I feel like they could at least send something with the shape-shifting thing, at least like find a way to not have to do that part, but still have people be infected. Um, it, It's like, it, the movie is a, is a, a product of its time. Um, I, I, <clears throat> it did its best with the paranoia and building the attention. And I did fill in the performances, but there's a lot of people in this movie. Yeah. Which yeah. I think a lot of has, subplots, which a lot, I, of, a lot of like characters, like there's a romance subplot. There's like a journalist looking for a story. There's a, there's a lot happening here. <laughs> yeah. To where it does take away the scenes um, with the monster. I think we get like maybe three scenes. Now, all those scenes good. Yeah. The scenes with the monster are really good. And I did quite enjoy the scene when like they open the door and it's like right fucking there. Um, that's really good. And you have a fire sign that for 51 when this came out, I was actually kind of impressed with them. Like, damn, that's actually like an impressive fire sign for the time this film came out. That was the only part I liked was the fire, the fire stunt that actually freaked me out a bit. Cause you know, thing gets lit up and then it just starts coming at them and the camera starts getting all shaky. Like it feels like something from much later in Hollywood's history. Like that, that moment was very ahead of its time. And I was very impressed with that. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as, it, as soon as he did the whole fire, I'm like, you did not get a lot of that back in that, in those days. Cause even back then that shit was dangerous. Cause he didn't have a lot of the safety precautions they have now. And even now it's still a dangerous thing to do, you know, if you do it wrong. Yeah. You know, but in we the- have the whole Kane Hodder story mm. that he'll tell you about. Um, but for back then, like, wow, they really fucking pulled that off there. Yeah, in the 50s, I mean, you're basically dousing a guy in fire who's wearing a costume that's, like, made of, like, flammable, like, latex and shit. Like, it's amazing that guy survived it. Like, you know, there weren't safety precautions on set, like, back then, you know? They just lit the whole fucking place up. No, they only had so many takes, and, I mean, he, like, like you said, he comes through that scene right close to the other actors, and then finally turns and goes out the, you know, out the wall, which I'm sure they, you know, was a breakable wall, obviously, to get through. And just like fucking gets out there and the fire still goes. And it's like, damn, I, yeah, like I, it makes me kind of wish film had like more of that. Cause I'm like, that is really impressive. Like that scene alone really impressed me with what they pulled off for 1951. Um, again, I, I can get why people like the film. I definitely understand it. I definitely get it. I mean, I, I thought it was fine. Um, 
it's not something I want to go back to a whole lot. Yeah. The only like if we ever did that as its own episode, that'd probably be what brings me back to it, but I don't see that happening in the future. Um yeah. the film becomes more of an allegory against communism than alien horror. The film got pretty lukewarm reviews upon release, but it ended up becoming a cult classic and is now much like the nineteen eighty two film was, you know, reevaluated, is now considered one of the greatest sci-fi films of all time. So it's interesting that both versions had that initial, and eh, it's not that great, and then years later were reevaluated by new people and thought, oh, shit, this is actually amazing. Uh, and yeah. I, did, I did find this absolutely hilarious. Sci-fi author Isaac Asimov, writer of iRobot and many other amazing stories, thought The Thing from Another World was one of the worst movies he's ever seen. Okay. That's got to hurt coming from a guy like Isaac Asimov. That's that, yeah, that probably stung a little bit. <laughs> I, I like, I, I can get its legacy because I like the, the idea of an alien in that kind of area, in that desolate area of the ward. Mm-hmm. You know, the only, for those who don't know, like, you know, they send, so science, there are scientists that go out to the uh, Antarctica. Um, and it's kind of like, I, I, the best way I can describe it so people kind of understand it's equivalent to like a, a military guy's going on deployment. Scientists go out there for so long. They have a, a base with everything they need there and they do whatever they do. They they study, do research, all this kind of stuff over there. And they do it for months. And it's just them. You know, it's it's just it's just them out there. It's a very remote area. So the idea of like that kind of thing happening and you're stuck in a remote area is inherently terrifying and it's a very unforgiving environment you know those buildings if you don't have those buildings you're facing below zero degree temperatures and we're talking i mean freezing cold you're out there for long enough you will fucking die from the cold um so i can get why like almost that stood the test of time just like the 50s is a weird decade with film and that there's a lot of 50 films that I just find fine. <laughs> well, it was so, you know, just every, almost every movie was made to like somehow lampoon the Russians or, you know, hype America up. And there was very little focus on individuality or creativity. We'd see that finally explode in the sixties, but yeah, post-World War II American film is incredibly lily white and kind of a joke. Ah, yeah. Um, but you know, thankfully, we figured that out. So, the next phase of this story was, of course, our main story here. John Carpenter was first approached about the project in 1976 by his friend Stuart Cohen, who was a co-producer on this film. Carpenter was an independent film director, so Universal decided. Not worth their time. <laughs> they wanted an established director who was, you know, working with studios. So they picked Toby Hooper. They had him under contract. Uh, but ultimately, I mean, hmm? I mean that's I would, definitely an interesting movie. Toby Hooper's the thing. Well, that's not what Universal thought because they were ultimately unhappy with him and his writing partner Kim Hankel's concept, so they kicked him to the curb. Which makes me wonder, like. Carpenter delivered a visceral, bloody, gory, freakish adventure. What what did Toby Hooper show them that was so bad? 
Right. And I mean, you just said Kim Hanko, like that's his writing partner he's had since Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So like, what did they concoct? I don't know. I'm just picturing God, like the fifties monster with a chainsaw. <laughs> I, I, I kind of hope there's like a script of that in existence. Cause I would love to find a way to get my hands on that just to read. Right. I, there's so many unmade scripts out there that I would love to just check out. Like Carpenter, for instance, was going to do creature from the black lagoon. And I've, I've seen a copy of his script. I haven't read it, but I've seen the, the script. I have access to it. God, that would be awesome. You know one I've been dying to get my hands on? George A. Romero's Resident Evil adaptation when he was going to do it. Oh God, God do I want to fucking hunt that thing down. I found uh, Kevin Smith's Superman Lives at that uh, script shop in uh, Seattle. Oh, you lucky bastard. You, you were there. <laughs> I know. That's right. That's why I found the Saul script. Yeah. Yeah. I like collecting scripts is fun, especially movies that didn't happen. Uh, oh, yeah. It's a little like pour into like a what its own little what if, if that had gotten made. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Carpenter, after Hooper said no, or Hooper was fired, Carpenter was then courted by Universal because they were like, well, we got to get this on. We got to get this off the ground. So fine. He had, uh, his previous three films, Escape from New York, The Fog, and Halloween, were all substantial hits, critically and financially, so they they thought he was a safe bet. Uh, and this was one of his, Things from Another World was one of Carpenter's favorite movies. He wanted to take things back to the fundamentals of the short story. And this was Carpenter's first film with a major studio, and thus a major budget. So he had never had freedom like this before. Uh, which is interesting. You know, you look at Halloween, Escape from New York, The Fog. They're such well-constructed movies. You'd think that he had a budget, but he did not have a budget. No, he just, he, you know, kind of like people like, you know, Damien Leone with Terrifier films, right? He he knew how to work with the budget he had. Yeah. He knew how to make it look good, how to get those shots that were necessary. He was just, he he's just that kind of, he was just that kind of filmmaker. He just knew how to pull this off. Budget didn't matter to him. He knew how to make it happen amazing uh, the thing was so Universal hired Bill Lancaster son of Oscar winning actor Burt Lancaster to write the screenplay I didn't know that that's fucking awesome <laughs> that was my first time learning that I never put two and two together yeah me neither uh, Lancaster also wrote the bad news bears and the bad news bears go to Japan and that was it he never wrote anything after the thing and he passed away in 1997 from a heart attack Writes three movies, one of them, one of the greatest films ever made, and then he just bounces. Right. Like, one of the greatest horror films ever made, one of the more well-known comedies, and then a sequel, um, and then bounces. Yeah. So weird. I don't know. I, I couldn't find out why. I wanted to find, like, did he, like, was it family? Was it a bad experience? Was it money? Like, what what made him stop? But I couldn't find I mean. Stop. Look, considering the writers had their strike this year, it could have been money. You know, we've learned studios don't give a fuck about the writers. It's true. And that's pretty much been the case since Hollywood started. Uh, I love that Lancaster won Carpenter over by describing to him the scene where the Norris thing fakes a heart attack and then the infamous blood test scene. So those were the two scenes where Carpenter was like, yep, I want to do this. <laughs> I'm the man for the job now. Yep. And Bill Lancaster also didn't like who goes there. Love that. Um, so 
now that he's got, you know, the partnerships made, we got Carpenter, we got Lancaster. There's a vision here. The big question now is how the hell is Carpenter going to translate this crazy shit to the big screen? Enter Rob Botin. Without whom, this a never would be possible. <laughs> yes, the legend. And what I like is that Stan Winston was on this project too before he, uh, well, before Jurassic Park and all that stuff. Yeah. But I loved in the behind the scenes, he quickly was like, look, this is Robert Teen's movie. Like, this is not, he goes, I helped. I played my part. He goes, but that was all him. It's his movie. He deserves praise, not me. Yeah. Winston was <laughs> brought in after the production schedule was getting uh, out of hand and Botin needed some help with another sequence so he brought in stan winston and we'll get to that sequence in a minute here but uh mm. the fact that both those creature you know creature effect legends were involved in this movie just you know that's all the evidence like, like if i knew nothing about the thing and you told me that like stan like those two guys did this i'd be like yeah it's probably gonna be a pretty good movie <laughs> yeah uh so Rob Bottin, how he ended up getting into Carpenter's inner circle is actually pretty cool. Mm -hmm. He met uh, Dean Cundy, Carpenter's cinematographer, on his previous three movies on the set of the film Rock and Roll High School. It's like a Ramones 80s comedy. I haven't seen it. I've I've heard about it. Um, mm -hmm. Begged him to introduce him to John Carpenter. He was like, you worked with Carpenter. Holy shit. I loved Halloween. Could you get me a, could you get me a, a meeting? And Cundy's like, I'll see what I can do. And uh, Botine did some work on the fog. Like he went to the set of the fog and Cundy's like, hey, Carpenter. Hey, John, this kid wants to talk to you like a job. And John said, like, stand up. He looked at he looked at Botine. He's like, you're hired. Be here tomorrow morning. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love when Botine was talking about that. And he said, as soon as he told him to stand up, he thought, shit, he's going to tell me to leave. And Carpenter's like, no, you're hired. Come back tomorrow. Isn't it great how easy it used to be to like, get a job on a movie. You just knew somebody who knew somebody you could end up doing some ghost pirate shit. And then you're end up, you end up doing the makeup effects on the thing. Yeah. It's great how it used to work. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Botine did some work on the fog later, did some work on the howling and his work on the howling impressed Carpenter enough to give him the thing. So, Oh, you know, it all worked out the way it was supposed to. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I can believe that the effects in the Howling should be talked about more. I know they get overshadowed by American Werewolf in London, and obviously those effects are fucking phenomenal. But the effects in Howling are really good too. Robertine did a great job with that. I think didn't Botine didn't he study under Rick Baker? Like, wasn't he his protege? There yeah. you go. Yeah, Rick Baker. The big thing with Rick Baker is that he kind of broke the mold. It used to be like special effect guys kept their shit a secret. So, like, God bless a new one want to bring into the industry. And Rick Baker was like, yeah, no, fuck that. Let me teach these guys what they, they need to know. And, yeah, he took in Robertine. Um, he, so he was kind of part of that new guard of, like, no, let me show you what I know. Because one day, you know, I got to get replaced. I, I like that he was very open about his process, but I also kind of get the other side of the coin where if you're the only one in Hollywood who can do a good werewolf, that's job security for life. I kind of get that. But, you know, either way. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it worked out and it led to a lot of, you know, I mean, because I, we got Rob Routine and Stan Winston, you know, Nicotero, Savini, we got all these guys out of it. So it worked it, out. It is like, a, you know, Rick Baker begat Rob Routine and like it just keeps going down the road, down the line. <laughs> People, you know, learning all these awesome tricks in the special effects game. Pretty sweet. 
Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Frank Baker was revolutionary. Um, for that doesn't get talked about a lot unless you're in Hollywood, but he was revolutionary for that. First guy ever to win Best Makeup at the Oscars, American Werewolf in London. Never forget that. So everybody told Carpenter that the idea of a shapeshifter was was too much. They were like, "How the hell are you going to visualize this? This is insane." But he trusted Botine to deliver, and Botine said to Carpenter, "Here's what it should be. It can be anything." This is the opportunity of a lifetime to do something nobody has seen. And I love that idea of like, you are given the keys to the kingdom for this wild, potentially awesome movie. And you, there's no mold. You can do anything. The limits, the limit is your imagination as a special effects guy. And Botine took full advantage of that. He really showed you like, you know, the wackiest, most insane, <laughs> freaky shit. Like, our, you know, our podcast contributor and buddy Colton watched this film for the first time earlier today. And the whole time he was texting me like, what the fuck? And stuff like that, like he, he had never seen anything like this. And this is today. So, yeah, just so much praise goes to Botine and his vision. Yeah, yeah, they, they you know, they, they fully took advantage of the idea that this thing could be anything it wanted to be to try to blend in and not be caught. Um and I think like it helped that the eighties was that time period of like special effects were taken off big time. Um, you know, that was the big push, like special effects and a lot of stuff, especially in horror. Um and it just helped that you had someone that finally said, like, the beauty of this is that our imagination is the only limitation. Besides that, we can pull this off. And yeah, you see it on display from the sketches they showed in the behind scenes that Barb Botine had done to what we end up getting all because he didn't let his imagination inhibit him. He didn't let um, anything that they told him inhibit. He said, "No, we can make it work. We can do it. It can. It can happen. Just we got to. We can make this this a thing." Yeah, no, no such thing as impossible. Uh, and Carpenter was very modest about like who he credits the success of this film to. He said it was fifty percent Rob Bottin's effects talent and fifty percent Dean Cundey's cinematography. Like he he doesn't take a lot of personal, like you know praise for how the film turned out he think he says you know it was my team which i respect he's always been like that and that's why i think when like you know again why i kind of defend him with his like his his grumpy man status now um because he's not egotistical like he you know he's called the master of horror one of the masters of horror but he'll quickly like shove that aside he's like i don't want to talk about that like i don't i don't care you know, and when it comes to any of his films, you know, not just the thing, but with a lot of his films, he will credit other people well before he credits himself. You know, he will never, ever sit there and be like, oh, yeah, it's because I was such a great director. You know, like something that admittedly, you know, some of your more well-known directors probably would be quick to say. And, you know, yeah, I'm not going to say names, um, but not him. He'd be so quick to be like, no, it's because of these people that this film was successful, not me. You know, I would say his direction is some of the reason the film was successful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they used copious amounts of KY jelly to make the creatures look very slimy looking. They just bought a fuck ton of KY, pun intended. And I, I, I love how many like stories involve like lube basically being like what they needed in a film. Like I think KY doesn't survive because of like the porn industry. I think it survives solely because of fucking the regular film industry. Well, you know, I mean, it makes things look, you know, slimy and gross and weird. It's also non-toxic. So I think, you know, and yeah. all you gotta do to get it off is spray a hose. It's 
it's water based half the time. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, get it off. Nice. Um, yeah. So the KY jelly, and then I thought this part was awesome. So the scene where Richard Dysart is doing, you know, clear, like one of the best scenes in the movie, and the Norris creature opens up and eats his arms. The way they did this was so smart. So they made arms out of jello, filled it with fake blood. They then found a guy with no arms and put a mold of Richard Dysart's face over that guy's face for when the arms get bitten off. Like, how how inventive. <laughs> yeah, and you wouldn't ever notice looking at the film. It you don't I love Arvo teams. Like anytime I watch it now, I'm just like, oh, I could have done that better. I'm like, I mean, yeah, I mean he because he knows what he did, you know, he knows he he was there. Um but for me, a, a person that's just hearing these stories, and even when I first watched it and didn't know any of this stuff, it still holds up. Like you don't notice it's done so well. It is, it's so seamless, all of it. Like, I don't see the, not once am I like, oh, that looks fake, or there's the zipper. No, the whole time you're like, fuck. <laughs> no matter how many times you watch this, you're just in awe of how nightmarish this still looks. And Yes. <laughs> uh, so, the scene that Stan Winston did was the scene with the dogs in the kennel. The first time we really see the thing at work. And uh, ooh, good work, Stan. Goddamn. Um, that's some freaky that, that separates the men from the boys. Like, when if you can get past that, you can handle the rest of the movie. Or <laughs> right, that, that that's the movie saying that hey, this is what this film's going to be. Can you handle it? Yeah. And like, you're on board or you're off at that point. I was on board immediately. I'm so obviously on board. The only thing that's changed now when I watch that scene is I have to look at my dog and be like, I swear to God, you run at that TV, I'm going to kill you. For me, I'm just constantly like thinking. So the main husky who plays the thing at the beginning of the movie, his name's Jed, and he was a very good boy. But he's also a half wolf. Those huskies are awesome. Yeah, that husky could fucking act. He was. We're gonna talk about him when we talk about performance. I'm not gonna lie. I was very impressed by that dog. <laughs> he was like just. I bought like he felt alien. Like the way the dog just carried itself was like. It didn't feel like a dog. It felt like something pretending to be a dog. I don't know how they captured that with a husky, but props. And then just watching yeah. its face open and devour the other huskies is fucking horrific. Yeah, I have a dog that I love to death, and that scene just horrifies me because I'm like, oh, God, those poor dogs. It's a, It had to be a husky. Like, you couldn't do that shit with, like, a bunch of dachshunds. It wouldn't work. No. No. I think it would look kind of silly. <laughs> I'd laugh. Yeah, I'd be like, ah, that Dachshund opened up. He thinks he's a big boy. <laughs> yeah, it was hard for me. Like, I, for those who don't know, because I don't know, if, if I haven't said a thousand times, I have a Shepherd Lab mix. So, like, that would horrify me. He's he's, he's about the size of a husk, the husky is in the movie. Um, yeah, that'd be horrifying. If I just woke up one night, time in my bed doing that, I'd be like, oh, no. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> But if like yeah, if if I had like my sister, she has the she has the dachshund. If he did that, I'd be like, oh, that's adorable. Let me just get out of the bed and just scamper away. I'm I'm, I'm trying to picture your reaction to like in the middle of the night, you you wake up and Duke opens in front of you. 
Are you going to be like, this is a weird nightmare? Or are you going to like react and get the fuck out of there? I'll probably, I'm going to hope it's a nightmare. And then when I realize it's real, I'm going to try to react and get the fuck out of there. But then it'll probably be too late. So I'll keep just be like, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. I'll fine. The giant dog literally like opened up into a monster right in front of me. I feel like I would freeze up and probably die. Yeah. Uh, hmm? Gosh, God, now I'm just, my dog does that tonight. I swear to God. Yeah. I, if I get a text from you, like, dude, you're not going to believe what happened last night. And that's the story I get. You better fucking call me. <laughs> that shit warrants a phone call, man. Yeah. No, the only thing Duke has done is uh the only the only reason I'm working up in the middle of the night because of Duke is because he fell off the bed one night. I think he went to adjust himself and I heard a loud bang and a yelp. You know that dog yelp when they're in pain. Yeah. Yeah. He did that and I woke him and was like, the hell? He fell off the bed. He's fine. No one worry. He's fine. But scared the shadow because I was asleep. <laughs> oh, well. I hope he figures his shit out because your dog's a bit of a doofus. Yeah, he's he's a great dog. He's he's adorable, but he's a doofus. As much as I love him. Uh the thing was shot in three primary locations. Uh the Juno Ice Fields of Alaska. They shot the opening bit with the dog in the helicopter up in the, the wilds of the Arctic. Uh the rest of the movie was shot on a refrigerated sound stage in LA, which I thought was funny. So all the interior shots are done in LA. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna crack when they talked about like how they went to go get lunch and they had to get out of all their clothes because it was like L.A. weather. Then they go back in and be like it'd be freezing, so they throw all their shit back on. Uh and then during the summer they shot on a glacier in Stewart, British Columbia, with a reminding ore. And in the winter it snowed, and they had the camp set so they could film outside, out there in British Columbia. So a couple locations, you know, he wanted to do this right. It wasn't just the back lot with some fake ass snow. It was sometimes, but other times he wanted actual snow. <laughs> um, yeah, and it shows the film looks great still to this day. It does. You never question that it's, you know, you don't ever think like that's not the Arctic. You just you roll with it. Um, yeah. The, the effects were so complex and time consuming that the shooting schedule fell behind big time. Uh, Carpenter said the thing was the most challenging film he ever made, but he's immensely proud of it. In a 2016 interview with filmmaker Mick Garris, he said of all the films he's made, The Thing comes closest to his original vision. And uh, his favorite bit is when Norris's head falls off and grows spider legs, because why wouldn't it be? Yeah. Yeah, I know. It, yeah, it's... Um, he's he's maintained that stance. Um, Mick Garris, for those who don't know, um, he, he did... Before he did a lot of Stephen King adaptations and had his own directing career. And he actually has been kind of hinting... Um, one of the reasons he stopped doing the postmortem podcast because he's been hinting that he has some projects um he's been working on they're very close to happening so we're about to get hopefully some more mick garris um in our lives which is always exciting um before that he was a publicist um he did um that's why he's had the stance he's had with the poltergeist thing he was a publicist for that movie and that's why i've one of my many backup reasons on why toby huber directed is because he said it himself he's like huber's directed that movie he goes and this is a guy that has worked with Spielberg himself. McGarris uh, did an episode of Amazing Stories um, with Spielberg, and they are friends. He actually would try to get him on the podcast, but Spielberg's just a busy guy. So he still talks to Spielberg. Um, so, yeah, I can kind of trust his opinion on that more than people on the internet. 
Um, but he was also a publicist for the, for the thing. Um, he was there on a lot of it. And, um, he, he luckily, even though Carpenter's quite the grump grump, um, during interviews, because they're really good friends, he, um, he tends to answer his questions a lot more, which makes for a fun interview, um, with them. Cause I, I watched that same thing. It was a lot of fun watching them. Cause again, you know, Carpenter's a little bit more willing to open up <laughs> to Mick Garris, um and actually answer the questions and you know have a conversation with them since they're since they're buds yeah it was very eye-opening and uh cool to hear carpenter talk about his career and you know with like pride and not pain <laughs> yeah i mean it also helps that like mick garris is a really good interviewer like he really knows how to get answers out of people so it helps that he he's really good at his job and then they're friends so it it made for a good thing. And yeah, it was nice seeing Carpenter kind of like reminisce in a good way on his stuff. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Mick Garris suggested the things box office failure could be due to the giant success of E.T. But as he also said, who do you know who's still talking about E.T. in 2016? And I've always agreed. And again, this is I, I like E.T. myself. I think it's I think it's one of Spielberg's better films. Yeah. But he's right. Like, I, I feel like more people talk about thing than they do et um and I, I i think it's just like a lot a lot of them did say it a lot of them agreed that it was just the timing of the release um just et was just a juggernaut when it came out you know it's kind of like when a recent example was why did you know when the studio was like we'll release del toro's new film nightmare alley the same day the same week Spider-Man no way home comes out it'll be fine no because one was a box office juggernaut that ate everything um, it's it's the same thing that happened. They felt the need to do it right when ET was coming out. It was a huge box office, and they made the comment that it opened in between Poltergeist, which at the time was a huge hit. It it just didn't stand a chance when it came out, unfortunately. But like McGarris said, it stood the test of time. More people talk about the thing. I have seen more anniversary screenings for it than I have for ET, certainly. Um, so it's like it's it's to me it's it stood a better test of time yeah. than ET has. I hit, I hit that anniversary screening in 2022. I got to go to that and that was a blast full house. Yeah. It's, it's still talked about and it's not just like, what I love is, you know, it's not just horror fans. Like this is one of those horror films that like even mainstream people, like more casual film fans know about and talk about to this very day. Mm hmm. So let's talk a bit about the casting of this movie. Uh, once he'd cast the movie, Carpenter insisted on two weeks rehearsal on an empty soundstage with the whole cast and crew. And uh, this was expensive, but he insisted that Universal uh, pay for that. And that got everybody a sense of camaraderie. And you got the sense that they'd been working together for a while, which is what you needed for the thing to work. And it's something that I, I that I'm glad he has sunk it is an aspect of filmmaking that's been slowly going away because studios don't want to fork out that money. Um, but I think it was a huge is a huge benefit, especially in films where they have to have camaraderie or some kind of chemistry. Um, I think it helps when you know you give them time before they shoot to build that chemistry up. I suppose like, okay, we're shooting, give us chemistry. Studios want Avengers level success, but they don't want to pay for it. Yeah, yeah, they don't want to fork out the money to get that kind of success. Uh, he also had the whole cast watch the thing from another world together, and uh, Peter Maloney, who played Bennings, uh, he didn't like it, thought it didn't hold up. 
So the, this made me happy because I also felt the film didn't hold up and I didn't like the story. And knowing that people like associated with this movie also thought the same thing, that, that made me very happy. Honestly, it felt like only Carpenter really liked the film. Everyone else was like, yeah, John, we like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Makes me think of uh, Winston from Ghostbusters. You know, if there's a steady paycheck in it, I'll believe anything you say. <laughs> ah. So... Carpenter uh, apparently liked to play practical jokes on people, made it a very fun, comfortable set for everybody. He played video games all the time. Uh, uh, that, that love of video games started oh, early. Yeah, he he just, yeah, he everyone was comfortable. No one really had anything bad to say. Wilford Brimley was talking about Kurt Russell, said he was a good guy, pleasure to be around. Uh, Keith David broke his left hand in a car accident right before they started shooting. And for the first half of the movie, you can't see his left hand. It's always hidden. Never noticed that. Oh, wow. I never noticed that. I always, I, Keith David's just the fucking man. I love him so much. And I, I loved when he was talking about like the, the release of the film. He goes, there's one review that stood out to me. And he goes, well, you can't take your kids to see this. And he goes, yeah, no shit. Then don't take your kids to go see it. What do you mean? That is not a critique. That is a, frankly, it shows that you're not a very good parent. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. Keith David's got such a cool voice. And, uh, yeah, it has a really cool class. I'm not saying class. That man is, he just gives off class to me. Anytime I see him, I'm just like, oh, he's, he's a classy man. Yes, indeed. Um, Carpenter purposefully left the ending ambiguous. He knows exactly who the thing is at the end of the movie, but he's not going to tell you. That's his business. Oh, I love it. I love his refusal. And I love he will straight up, I think he, because, you know, he actually did do the the promotional circuit for a little bit when his show came out recently. And he was on, even on Colbert, he popped up on his late night show. And even I think Colbert was like, so do you know? And he was just like, even then he goes, oh yeah, I know. Are you going to tell us? <laughs> nope. <laughs> He's gonna he's gonna take that to his to his grave, and like knowing how he like knowing his love of practical jokes and his disdain for the industry, he's gonna he's gonna keep that shit to himself. <laughs> Dude, I'm proud of him. Don't tell anyone because I love the ambiguous ending. I love it. Um, I think it's the best. I know they mentioned they shot actually they shot a different ending. They had written like there were different endings. They were kind of having issues figuring out how the hell this was going to end. Um. But I like what they picked. It it fits with the theme of the movie and what the movie's doing. Yeah. And I think it's best left ambiguous. I personally think it's Childs. I am in that I am in that camp with the theory of like the breath thing. Because I was watching, I was like, yeah, you don't ever see his breath like you do McCready's. Um, but I, I love the ambiguous. I love that we're keeping it open. Yeah. It's dark, you know, it's the apocalypse. It's not supposed to be sunshine and lollipops this is the end of days bitches yeah and look the only thing you know for certain is that they de- both will definitely die before rescue comes that for sure is certain oh yeah so the music this is one of carpenter's rare movies where he did not compose the score uh the score was done by iconic italian film composer ennio morricone but Carpenter showed Morricone the music from Escape from New York and said, can you give me something like that? So the thing is Morricone doing Carpenter. Yeah. And I I did like how um, when Mick asked about that, 
Carmen's like, okay, let me just dispel a rumor that's been going on for a while. He goes, people are mistaken. And like basically, like Morricone did, like you said, he did what he was required to do, but he kind of like the bare minimum or was very like it was very sparse, as like Carpenter kind of put it. And Carpenter said he did actually himself do like three scenes himself and he beefed up the score. So there is still the Carpenter touch there. Yeah. Um I, he didn't luckily to Yeah. I feel like if if Carpenter wasn't heavily involved in the music, he wouldn't have added it to his set list when he does his tours of doing his music. Exactly. And you know, to the credit again, he didn't dismiss Morricone. He, like he I don't think he would ever do that. I mean, the guy's a fucking legendary composer. Um he he was very quick to be like, no, he did, you know, he did what was required. He did a very good job. I just beefed it up a bit where I could. Yeah. And you can tell. I mean, mm-hmm. if if you played this like alongside Escape from New York and the fog, you wouldn't question that it wasn't Carpenter. Like it's just it feels yeah. very much like it, his work. I honestly forget until I watch the film every single time that it's not Carpenter that does the score. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah, it's Carpenter. Like it sounds just like his stuff. And then it's, I'm like, Oh wait, that's right. Morricone does this. It sounds so similar to Prince of darkness. Like the two scores could be like identical. It's, it's very, I think there's more Carpenter in here than we, than we think. <laughs> yeah. Um, Morricone did write some lush violin scores for the thing that ended up not being used. And uh, he recycled some of that music into his score for The Hateful Eight, which he won an Oscar for in 2015. Which also has a very similar vibe to the thing of, you know, somebody in this cabin's not who they appear to be. So Right. Even though I prefer the thing over The Hateful Eight. Oh, yeah. That's, sorry, not, even a, that's not even a conversation. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Tarantino fans. Yeah. There's, there's no one in the thing who tells the story of the time they made a Confederate suck their dick. So... You know, if this film was missing anything, I guess it's that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll stand by it. I don't think that Heath Wade is one of Tarantino's best films. I'll stand by that statement. It's my least favorite of his, but I mean, even his worst movie is still like leagues better than some director's best movies. Oh, no, absolutely. His worst films are leagues better than some director's worst films. Yeah. <laughs> um. So. As a result of E.T. kind of stealing the thing's thunder, people wanted friendly alien and evil ghost. They did not want friendly ghost and evil alien. What a nihilistic ending. Yeah, they didn't want the apocalypse in the ice, which I kind of get, but also, like, I'll take your kids. That really bothered me. Really? <laughs> yeah, that's the... My God. I, I agree with Keith David's statement. Like, yeah, then just don't take your kid. <laughs> that's on a review. Are you serious? Yeah. Can you imagine going to John Carpenter and being like, your movie scared my childhood. I, my child, I want my money back. He'd laugh in their yeah. face. Can you imagine? Yeah. Can you imagine that time at that time? Like you, when you would look at the magazine and see what they're they're saying about these movies. And you're like, I wonder what they're saying about the thing. I'm interested in that. Something you can't take your kids to. It's radar, no shit. Anything else you want to tell me about the movie? Well, people acting sweet. All right, I'm done. What about rated R cosmic body horror fluids and goop and blood and shit what part of that screams i think eight-year-old billy would love this i think that's just uh it was a a, a fort a foretelling of this ideal that we need to only make films that families can see 
Fox. Because God bless you. Yeah, God bless you. Make R rated shit that, hey, the kids can't see this. Get the fuck over it. One day they'll be old enough to watch it anyway. Who gives a fuck? To quote one of my favorite comedians, Tom Segura, if you can't get a sitter, then you don't get to go to the movies. Yeah. And guess what? In the water streaming we live in now, I really don't care if you can't go to the movies because you can't get a sitter. Get the fuck over it. It's Dude, going to be on streaming even anyway. If we were somehow doing a podcast in 1982, I mean, despite the fact that we are leagues ahead of the curve in every capacity in terms of technology, but I would also not give a shit if somebody couldn't go to the movies. That's not my problem. Yeah, it's not mine. Look, you chose, and look, I'm, I get it. I, I'm all about like, as a couple, you should have date nights. You should get out there. Shouldn't all be about around your kids. You're still allowed to be a couple. But realize that when you have a child, you have officially submitted your ticket to the, I don't get to do as much with my life because I have a child to worry about. It's kind of like how I have accepted that I don't have things I can do because I have a dog to worry about when I go places. Hey, can I stay at a hotel in D.C. after a Rage Kids Machine concert? Probably not if I can't get anyone to watch my dog for the night. I got to make it back. I have to make that drive back. Hey, that drive back was fun. No, it is. But you know what, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I know I have to do that. I'm not bitching about it because, hey, it's just a part of life. It was what happens when you make certain life decisions. That's the key word there. Decision. You, your children, and I'm speaking to everybody who's listening to this show right now, your children are in no way my problem or responsibility. Yeah. If I hear them crying in my R-rated movie, I paid money to go see, because I, I can do that still whenever I want. Um, I'm going to be angry. Yeah. Call it out. I'm at that point in my life. Call it out. Um, okay, so as a result of all that, the thing underperformed at the box office was met largely with critical revulsion. A lot of critics were like, this is gross. I don't want to see this. Um, it grossed 19 million on a budget of 15 million. So $4 million profit, not what Universal wanted. This yeah, was even for the 80s, not, yeah, even for the 80s, still not really big back then. I mean, you had movies regularly at that point starting to make quite a bit over their budgets. Yeah, this was in their opinion, Carpenter failed them. So he never really got, he lost a lot of Hollywood cred over this, which is unfortunate because he delivered a hell of a movie. Uh, yeah. Some- and honestly, now that I'm thinking about it really shows how cool of a guy Kurt Russell is because he easily, I mean, this was after they did escape from New York. He easily at that could have said like, dude, I'm never working with you again. I'm Kurt Russell. Like I can do better than that. But he came back to do big trouble in the world trying to, with him he you know he did the escape from la with him like kind of speaks again and i only say that because i know like we mentioned it earlier he's not on the more recent interviews uh kurt russell for this uh for this stuff and i never got the vibe of like him thinking he was better than this but it was never that vibe it's just the dude's a in-demand actor like he was probably busy um so just kind of a cool thing i just thought of like kind of shows you like the kind of faith that the the studios may have thrown him to the curb, but a lot of people, a lot, luckily, a lot of people who actually work in the industry did not. You know what I mean? They they stuck by him even after this whole thing happened. Well, it took some time 
But eventually, thanks largely to VHS rentals and uh, television reruns, the thing found an audience that loved it. It's since been reevaluated. It is now considered one of the greatest horror films of all time. And on the Shout Factory edition is the TV edit of the thing. And I got to say, I'm curious what what is in there? What was acceptable to broadcast on fucking ABC in the 80s for this movie? Is it like 30 very minutes? <laughs> so it looks apparently it's like an hour and a half. So apparently they cut out like almost like 20 ish or so minutes of the film. So I bet, yeah, all the all the monster scenes. Anytime there's like copious amounts of blood. Yeah, as soon as a, a, the transformation stuff starts, we're like, and cut. Yeah, this sounds like it seems like a great time for a commercial break. <laughs> right. What's crazy to me is that like this, and this was during the '80s and '82. So this was when like the slasher craze was taking off, like horror practical effects were taking off. Like it seems it wasn't exactly like. The only thing out there being gross, but man, they came after this. Granted, I think it was the most different, and it was showing something that we weren't seeing. Yes, and that's probably why they had the reaction they had, um, compared to like other horror films coming out at that time period and after. Um, but it's not like you know, again, it wasn't you know, it certainly at that point wasn't going to be the last thing we saw when it came to practical effects and horror films of the eighties. Yeah, I agree. Thing has an IMDb score of 8.2, which is amazing for, for IMDb. Rotten Tomatoes score of 85%, audience score of 92%. Critics' consensus reads, grimmer and more terrifying than the, than the 1950s take. John Carpenter's The Thing is a tense sci-fi thriller rife with compelling tension and some remarkable makeup effects. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, finally they were saying that when it came out. But hey, you know, they're saying it now. Yeah. So there was a prequel film made in 2011, also titled The Thing, that failed on every level to match up to the 1982 film. It tells the story of the Norwegian team that first discovered the ship and its pilot. It was directed by Matthijs van Heidingen, who was so disillusioned by the rampant studio interference of his film that he left Hollywood and went back to Norway. Well, the film... Holy shit. Oh, yeah. And... Finding a pronunciation for that guy's name was a fucking nightmare. Holy Norwegian name, Matthijs. So while the film was originally set for release in April, Universal changed the date to October 2011 to allow time for reshoots. An official studio press release stated that the intention of the reshoots was to, quote, enhance existing sequences or to make crystal clear a few story beats or to add punctuation marks to the film's feeling of dread. And that is horseshit. Universal had test screenings of an early version of the film shown to focus groups, the reaction to which the studio interpreted as negative. They didn't say they didn't like it, but the studio was like, these people seem like they don't like it. (laughs) Uh, In response, many scenes involving character development were either cut from the film or reshot to be shortened as the studio disliked the slow burn pace of the film. Another concern was that the use of practical effects made the film look too much, quote, like an 80s movie. As such, the decision was made to replace most of the film's practical effects with CGI. They had already made the movie with practical effects, and the studio was like, this looks too 80s, which, yeah, (laughs) was the point. It takes place in 1982, like a few days before the 80s movie. But yeah, God. Uh, yeah, I know you have a lot of thoughts on this. 
I didn't know some of this information, so I did this rewatch. So, look, when I, I first heard about this, you know, I'm an avid uh, fan of Fangoria. I'm on Blade Disgusting all the time. You know, I have my horror sites. I keep up with all, all my horror news. And I remember the practical effects of this film were being promoted heavily on those sites. They were releasing screenshots, and Blade Disgusting was going, hey, this might be really good, guys. Look at these screenshots. And it was all the practical, like, creations. And I was like, oh, this is going to be something neat. And these those pictures still exist. I implore you guys to look it up online. Those pictures still exist. Um, and I was gonna, I was like, okay, you know, it's probably not going to reach the heights of the original, but you can tell like they're trying to make something special here. At least they're trying. Then I found out all that information. I had already known about the 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 whole like replacing the practical effects. Because I remember that was being covered extensively of like, oh, no, they're taking away the practical effects and replacing it with CGI, which, by the way, looks 10 times worse than when it first came out. Because um, yeah. that this the CGI looks terrible. Um, I'm looking at the, the practical effects of the 2011. Yeah, they had it all. They had like, you know, prosthetics and puppets and all sorts of shit like they had. They were going to do this right. And the studio fucked them. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's why I said, like, the dude, they had so much, and the CGI just looks terrible because you can tell it was done last minute. It looks, I remember when I was rewatching it, and the first one happens where he transforms the helicopter. That's when I texted him, I was like, Oh, god, this still looks bad. And I'm like, Fucking hell, that state first off, interpreting the test screening as negative, not we didn't read the sheets and see what people said, we just think they didn't like it so let's cut out the character development it fucking shows because i didn't give a shit about any of these characters when i watched the film like i don't care about anyone you you're and you waste really good actors like mary elizabeth winstead joel edgerton you're wasting these actors i don't care about them in this movie um because you cut out all the scenes that were necessary to build it up so that when shit hit the fan in the film like it does in the original we would have cared what happened to these people. We don't. And then to replace all that shit with CGI because your quote is it looks too much like an 80s film. The original film came out in 1982. It takes place in the 80s. This is a prequel to that film about the team that they go explore briefly in their original film when they go to the, the Norwegian camp. Um... Yeah, no fucking shit. It looks like it. it was supposed to, so it stayed in line with that. You fucking idiots in charge. These are the people in charge of our movies. This is this. These are the people in charge. Not actual smart creatives. These idiots um, that make these decisions. And then we end up with the thing. So I'll say it. I would love one day, if it's possible, to get the original cut of this film edited intact because it sounds like even if it wouldn't have been as good as you know carpenter's the thing you had filmmakers that we just talked about with remakes that cared that wanted to make something that at least stood next to it and the studio absolutely fucked that away into what it, it is now yeah. hashtag release the hage engine cut <laughs> doesn't quite yeah give us it doesn't well I'll, I'll figure something else but yeah 
we need we need the original cut of this film. I'm very curious on that original cut with the with the scenes of character development put back in and the actual practical effects. If this would have at least been an enjoyable film, that would have at least been good. Yeah, because it is wildly bad. Like they, yeah. Where did a Mary Elizabeth Winstead go? Was she human? I I hate that ending so much because I'm like, guys, it's a prequel. Like. And that had to be a studio mandated shit too. I'm 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 assuming, um, it's a prequel. Like she's not in the original film, so you know, like this dictates that she dies. The helicopter scene where like you know they start shooting the dog that felt so tacked on, so forced. Um, oh, God. halfway through, like halfway through the movie, I started thinking like, wasn't Adewale Akinoye Agbaje in this? What happened to him? I I don't remember. I don't remember what happened. <laughs> I started like mentally checking out because at first I was like, I don't remember the thing being like this capable of this stuff in the original film. And I was like, well, I'll I'll worry about that when I watch the original film again. I the scene that I did I did jump at was when it breaks out of the ice. I didn't expect that, and that the way that unfolded was really good. But that part was good, yeah. That's about it. I agree with you. Like nobody's developed enough to care. The creature looks insanely fake when it's like merging with Eric Christian Olsen. I don't, that looks so fake. I didn't buy that at all. I want to feel, yeah, I was like, I want to feel bad for the character, but then it just becomes a CGI creation. And I'm just like, oh, God, the scene when it transforms in the helicopter, I'm just like, oh, God, this looks so bad. This looks so bad. Yeah. How the hell did Joel Edgerton survive that? Not just crash, but also like, how did his career survive that? Oh, I was about to say, well, remember, he was the thing. That's how he survived the helicopter crash. Oh, the he whole was time secretly... he was the thing. Oh, okay. I thought he got turned into the I assumed he was the whole time. He could have gotten turned into the spaceship. I assumed since the helicopter. I don't know. The movie doesn't really give a shit either. Um, <laughs> I think he. I think the only reason he survived is because he came out with the gift. And that was like, okay, we're good with Joel Edgerton. No, I give, I give full credit to Warrior. Oh yeah, I always forget about Warrior. That's a really good movie. Yeah. Um there is they've been trying to do another one for quite some time. Apparently there's a sequel series in development right now that Carpenter has uh put his blessing on. He's involved as a producer. So who knows? Maybe that'll happen. Is it gonna be in the Arctic again or did this fucker finally make it out of the ice? I don't know. I have heard about that where they've been toying with a sequel series, a sequel movie. I know Carpenter is kind of involved, at least producing wise, with both now that he's kind of entering the ring yeah. of filmmaking in some way in more recent years. Um, we'll see. I read in the trivia that the the original intention of the of the prequel, they were going to reveal that the pilot of the ship was not the thing. It found the thing on another planet and was taking it home to research it. It got out, infected him, and he crashed the ship in an attempt to kill himself and the alien. That would have been a cool approach, especially mm-hmm. tying it into the very beginning of Carpenters with the spaceship coming to Earth. All right, but then I'm like, isn't that isn't that brace isn't that basically Prometheus? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, this was before Prometheus came out, so they would have been the first to do it. I know, but then I'm th- like, was Ridley talking to somebody on that set and thought, oh, that's a good idea, and then scribbled it in a notebook and then left. Right. He just was like, let me see how this movie plays out first. <laughs> oh, good. They didn't do it. I can do it. Uh-huh. I think even if they did do it, he was going to do it, quote, better. 
Yeah, well, we saw how that turned out. <laughs> okay. With that, let's go back to the thing, the good one, and give it some uh, talk about it properly. We got four categories here. Best scene, best performance, best music moment, and best line. Where do you want to start? Look, I'm going to say it. I want to knock out the music first, only because I cheated. I didn't put any specific moment. I just put the whole goddamn movie. I, I can't do this with Carpenter anymore. It's so hard with Carpenter. It's so hard when it comes to music. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I also put Superstition by Stevie Wonder because that that's briefly in the movie. Um, yeah, that's a good part. I do love that. Let's just talk a little bit about like Morricone's score here. Morricone, Carpenter, whoever you want to credit with this. I both. love I'll credit both. They're both great. Yeah, more a carpenter. Um, I love. It feels like, like the monster's heartbeat. Like that's what evil's heartbeat sounds like, and that that was I, I realized that on this watch, and I was like, "Fuck, that's cool." <laughs> yeah, it and the way the score can just build during the as the scene start gets more intense during those scenes, it's so masterful, and then like. When the scenes do get detensed, like it, oh, the the tense scenes kind of sub, subside, in that that steady beat that will sometimes play throughout to just keep you on edge, to just kind of keep you like, oh shit, things still aren't right, even though we've subsided, something's yeah. still amiss. Only Carpenter could basically sustain an entire movie on, dun dun. <laughs> like that's that's pretty much it, but it's terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, dude, it's just God. Like, yeah, that's why I was like, dude, okay, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to cheat this one time and just put the whole score. I can't. You have two masters that just merged it together so fucking flawlessly throughout this whole entire film. Yeah, it's a beautiful score. I'd love to have a vinyl edition of this of this score. Oh, I think that would be beautiful. I must say, I've I've already gone wild on my Spotify account and like followed John Carpenter on there and downloaded like all of his albums. <laughs> I'm if I could get them on vinyl, yeah, I'm surprised you haven't taken the plunge into like buying like horror soundtracks. The only reason I haven't is space. It's <sighs> actually that's my sole reason. Is space. Yeah. If I had space, trust me, Raxworks would have my money so much. Because like earlier you were showing me your like horror themed energy drink, and I'm thinking like he's not buying vinyl, but he's buying fucking drinks. <laughs> yes, G fool. Thank you for doing a horror collection called the Hack and Slash. And uh, I'm liking it enough that I'm going to be looking at the Chucky one that's coming out. And I might get the one that comes with the shaker. <laughs> uh, all right, let's do uh, let's do dialogue. I don't have a lot written down. No. Here. It's a good it's an amazing script, but I have I only have three lines uh, written down. Uh, I want to start with uh, I just I love the implications of this line. It's right after the Norwegians landed at the at the American outpost. The one idiot blew up his chopper with the grenade that slipped out of his hands. And uh, the other one got shot by Gary. And McCready just walks up to the wreckage and just goes, first goddamn week of winter. I'm thinking like, buddy, you have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea how much first it's going to get. This is the best it's going to get. Like you, this is the last time you're gonna remember being kind of happy. Yeah, because it's going downhill real quick. I love his first goddamn week of winter. Like that's all you need to know. It tells you about McCready. Tells you about the situation. It was perfect. 
Oh yeah, and mainly kind of like the the just making Kurt Russell a badass, and that line sells it. You're like, all right, I like this character. Well, I love that. Like McCready's not even in charge; he's like their pilot, but he over the course of the film takes charge of the situation because he knows he's human and he knows he's the only one he can trust. And yeah, perfect. great. The guy with the dynamite and the flamethrower makes the rules. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Come near me. I'm blowing this up. We all go. The look of crazy in his eye in that scene. It's like, he's done. Don't fuck with him right now. <laughs> Wild. Uh, the one line I picked, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's a, it's a simple line, but it's become super iconic with the movie. And it's, they talk about in the bonus features. It's when the head starts to walk away and they all look you get that beautiful shot of the guy going you've got to be fucking kidding yeah that was my second line too that's it's too perfect it's the exact reaction a guy like palmer would have to watching that unfold it's like what like he can't comprehend that he's that's what he's watching (laughs) yeah it's why the line works so well because at that point you the audience feel the same way you're like okay they got they got okay. We're good, and then you you see the head come off. And you're like, "Are you kidding me right now?" And then they finally see it, and he he says, "With the audience singing, it's just you got to be fucking kidding me right now." Like it's, it is, it, it's doing this now. It's the fucking spider legs and the antenna. It's like this is nuts. How does somebody? How does somebody read the script and think like I know exactly what this scene needs? <laughs> like you know, open chest, big mouth. Tear off head, head grow spider legs. Blah, blah, blah. Like that's you get me, John? <laughs> Just that's great. My God. Uh yeah, I, I love that. Um uh, my last one is from Gary after the uh blood test exonerates him. <laughs> and he has a moment of panic where he says, I know you gentlemen have been through a lot, but when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. Like, yeah, I get it, Gary. You've earned you've earned it. They all have like really great scenes of that where you can just tell they're done. Like this is not what they how they expected their fucking time to go. No, if you would have, you know, before they had headed up there, if somebody had like alien invasion on your bingo card, would have said they were crazy. Like, nope. Yeah, you like this is just insanity. No, uh, one one little bit of longer, and I'm I almost, almost forgot until I was like, oh shit, I meant to pull the IMDb on this one because I was like, I'm not writing this whole goddamn thing, and it has to do with that blood test, and it comes from McCready, but that little like monologue he has where he's like, we're going to try a little bit of everybody's blood because we're going to find out who's the thing. He's like watching Norris in there gave me the idea of that maybe every part of him was a whole, every little piece was an individual animal with a built-in desire to protect its own life. You see, when a man bleeds, it's just tissue. But blood from one of you things won't obey when it's attacked. It will try and survive. Crawl away from a hot needle, say. It's just that that's like it encapsulates again why he takes lead. He is already understanding very quickly how this thing is operating. And this idea of like, this is what we're doing because I can't trust any of you fuckers. And this is how this thing is operating. So we're going to find out which one of you is it right now it consistently like just astonishes me how quickly that sense of paranoia sets in in this movie it is so fast it's so 
as soon as this thing starts mutating into people, they're just like, oh, I don't know. Like, where were you, you know, a second ago? I was over here. Well, who can prove that? I don't, I don't trust you. It just explodes. Like the fear and the uncertainty and the confusion of this impossible situation just boils over so quickly and it does not stop. It's yeah. It's, it's like just so hypnotizing. Yeah. It, oh God. And that, that, that little speech captures it so perfectly. Like, we're all going to stay calm right now. We're going to do this blood test. I want to find out who it is. When I do, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about the blood test when we get to scene. Um, performance. So instinct, I think, for both of us is to go Kurt Russell. I mean, yeah. So he's amazing. Yeah, he's he's incredible. He's If I was going to follow anybody into hell... Kurt Russell, which is why that bit in especially South with Park, that like, hair, yeah, I was gonna say especially with that hair and beard combo. I'm like, yeah, I'll follow that man. That bit in South Park where they like bring him into Imagination Land because he was in Stargate, and he's like, I don't, I don't know what to, I don't know why I'm here. Like, you were in that movie that was kind of like this. Like, I get it. I would as, as soon as shit hits the fan, I'm gonna go find Kurt Russell. <laughs> he knows what to do. Yeah. <laughs> uh. All right, so outside of Kurt Russell, who we all agree owns this movie, who who else get Keith David props here? Keith David, all right. Keith David, without question. He this is a guy who to me like Kurt Russell is always like he commands the screen in anything he's in. I've always liked Keith David, even when like uh, for those who aren't familiar, any Rick and Morty fans, he plays the president of the United States in Rick and Morty. Um, recently, he's been in tons of other things. But he's always a commanding presence on screen. Even when he's just like in Rick and Morty, he's just a voice. You know it's him because he has just that distinguishable voice. Um, and he's, he he himself is an, just seems like an awesome dude. And I just love his character, Charles, as the guy that's like, not really the antagonist, but the one questioning McCready the most of like, why do you want to do that, bro? Hmm? Like He's the only one that seems to try to be like, maybe you're the thing. And you're just fucking with us. Yeah, he's he's antagonistic for you know for himself. Every it, it very quickly becomes every man for himself, and he's he's doing what he's got to do to save save himself in this situation. And you know, once they do clear things up, it's he's very much like, "Yep, you're human. Take a flamethrower." And they're they're yeah. cool. <laughs> Um, I want to give props to David Glennon who played Palmer. Uh. Palmer's my favorite character in this movie because he's he doesn't fucking care. Like he's just such a sarcastic nihilist. And by the time this rolls around, he's just like, yeah, you know what? Alien might as well fucking kill me. <laughs> he doesn't yeah, right. care. <laughs> well, this is my life now. Yeah. Just yeah, he he's the guy who utters, you know, you gotta be fucking kidding. He's just he can't believe this is what this is his life now, but he also is like you know, fuck it. Take take the plane down. I don't care. <laughs> oh yeah, no, he he's great. I know yeah, I want to give a shout out to as well. And he, he's the one that made the, the the speech on the couch to get me off the uh Donald uh, uh Mofat, I think is how you say his last name, as essentially the kind of one that's in charge of the whole station. Um Gary. He's great as the guy that's like if you notice he's really quick to be able to use that gun. Like he is he he does what's necessary. 
um, to make sure they're all safe. But he's also, I like, he's one of the quickest to realize I may not be the one to be in charge of this. Someone else needs to, um, in that one scene, like he is very cognizant of that. Again, kind of signs of like the guy's actually a pretty solid leader. Like, like, Hey, look, I may not be the one to do this right now. Someone else needs to take this gun from me and someone else needs to lead. It can't be me. Um, you know, he, he's very cognizant enough to relinquish that. Um, and then obviously, yeah, he has a great moment on the couch, or he's like, now that we know it's not me, get me off the fucking couch. And also, he's just his reaction when the it's 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 kind of like to me, I I'm just like dark humor that may or may not have been intentional. Um, but when he's like freaking out when the Nulls thing is happening, and he's just like, oh, I like just losing it. It's it's kind of funny, dude. In that like in that bit where it's you know revealed that Palmer's the thing, and he just starts like shaking as he starts mutating and all the other guys on the couch are like ah ah like get out of here it's it is it's it's weirdly funny it's so outlandish you can't help but laugh it's like jesus christ yeah next to a shape-shifting alien that's going to kill them as soon as it gets loose like yeah and they can't get loose and i love you can hear charles cut me out cut me out cut us out of here my favorite part of that whole thing is is mccready with the flamethrower like not turning on and he just keeps like trying he's not doing anything to help them out he's just like come on come on come on come on just trying with the damn <laughs> flamethrower <laughs> god <laughs> well we're gonna all right with that let's just let's just go straight to scene uh let's talk about the blood test yeah let's talk about the, let's let's talk that one out there's other scenes i want to talk about let's talk that one out real yeah. quick uh so carpenter he kind of breaks the rules with this scene you know Garris brought it up in the interview, you know, it's supposed to happen. Things happen in threes. You know, you're expecting the third guy to be the thing. You weren't even thinking about it being the second guy. <laughs> Didn't even come into your mind because you know how things are supposed to unfold. And then when it, you know, you, the whole, I love how it's completely nonchalant. You know, you were the only guy who could have got to that blood. We'll do you last. And then, and it just is like, everyone freaks the fuck out because it's, it's so out of nowhere. And, perfectly done Ugh. yeah it, it, it breaks the rules of threes like you know gareth said but also there's no musical scene. there's not this slow you know nowadays studios couldn't fucking help themselves so it'd be a build up, build up. and i'm saying this because i also in my pursuit of our you know upcoming episode sat through the fucking nun too and god damn it i hate the nun movies um but they can't help themselves right they have to like stop the music Right, they build it up, they build it up, and they stop it because now they're like, okay, prime them for the jump scare, and it's like, well, now I know it's coming, and if I jump, it's not because I'm scared, it's because it's just a loud noise that got me. Yeah. Um, you didn't actually scare me. It's a cheap fucking effect. Not here, like you said, break the war threes. He makes a comment and then does it, and then it just fucking happens completely legitimately, as James Wan would say with his own jump scares. An earned Trump scare. It wasn't cheap. You earned he earned that shit. Yeah. You don't see it coming. It legitimately gets you the first time if you don't know what's going to happen. Especially if you're like this film of that's like, uh, well, I know what's going to it's gonna be the third one because rules are three, and that's how they're going. And uh, I know what they're doing, and then they fucking break it. But again, you gotta know the rules to break them. That's the and that's the beauty. At that point, Carpenter knew the rules to break them to make sure he got you on that scene. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, on all the countdowns, like this was in the 40s or 50s on Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments. 
and that scene was the scene and for, it should have been way higher i'm glad i was i was happy with its placement on the shutter countdown like top 10 deserved to be there but i think it was top 10 on shutter yeah. I think it was like number three like it was there it was like top five <laughs> yeah uh and in that scene it was the it was the clear which is my other favorite scene of the movie mm-hmm. uh but yeah that blood test is just so unpredictable i love <laughs> i got to show this movie to my cousin ryan uh He'd never seen it before. We did a double feature of The Thing and The Fly, which was a fun, fun day. <laughs> and um, when that scene came on, like, Ryan's a pretty stoic guy. Doesn't really, you know, react to things. But I, I swear I saw him kind of <laughs> jump a little bit with, with the blood test. I was very happy to see that. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, you can, like, so you don't get going. And the only thing I like about that is, like, we're talking about the dark humor, but I like when, like, uh, Kurt Russell is like, Windows, flamethrower, because, you know, they got the other one. And he gets ready to go do it, and then he fucking freezes up, and you can hear me like, "What are you doing?" And then you know, Windows gets a hell of a fucking death, <laughs> and it, yeah. And then they, as soon as that they did, as soon as they kill all the monsters, they immediately resume the blood test. This yeah, time, I like how they go right back to it, and no one's untied. <laughs> Well, they all they all they confirmed was Palmer's the thing. They didn't confirm that the rest of those those other two guys aren't. But yeah, now McCready's holding it out a little farther. <laughs> Great touch. Doesn't want to do that again. Ooh, I was also, right in his fucking face. Also, yeah, also feel like that scene was a nice little homage to the original because you know they have the scene where they fucking flamethrower it finally and it bust out the door or the wall not the door yeah. the wall that was and definitely like, Ooh, that so much. for sure uh which made it feel you know i'm glad i watched that made it feel a little bit more like oh that's a tip of the hat you know wagging the finger feels good yeah um, so apart from the blood test what are some other scenes that you love in the thing uh let's get i say let's get the big one out of the way the fucking stomach opening one because I think that was like this a scene I saw in context like years ago when I first like was heard about this movie. I was like, the hell? And yeah, dude, again, just a perfect scene. And Carpenter kind of breaking the rules a little bit there too, if you think about it. Um, because there's again no fucking dumbass music to prime you, like, okay, we're getting ready to scare you. It's a already intense scene. The guy has died of a heart attack after McCree. You kind of get the things kind of like slightly snapped because he's holding the dynamite. <laughs> he's like, "I'm going to blow it up if you guys come near me." And I'm like, "Jesus Christ!" <laughs> um, he even lights it. You see it lit. Like it's like okay. Um, can, we need to take it down a notch. <laughs> um, but uh, paranoia really makes you do dangerous, like crazy things. But you have seen where the guy dies heart attack. They finally settle, but it's still kind of a tense scene already. So they're like, we have to get them back. You know, they're doing their thing. And again, there's no music building up to this. There's no, you just, one minute, they're doing it. Everything's normal. You're thinking it's probably not him because he died. And then next thing you know, you see it go down and you see the stomach open. The hands keep going. You're like, holy shit. And things obviously just rack it up for everyone. Everyone's just like, oh, what the fuck? And, you know, they have to, you know, they they manage to um, flame that one up, but then they never see the head part come up. And then, it, you know, it birthed that, you know, the iconic line of you got to be fucking kidding me when they all turn around thinking they're done. And now you got a fucking head with spider legs crawling away. 
yeah, it's out of nowhere. And it makes you wonder, like, if, you know, nobody suspected Norris. So, like, why did he bring attention to himself with a heart attack? Like, I wonder, like, it was that Nor Like, when the thing takes you over, does it take you over or are you still in there? And was that Norris reacting to the thing's possession of him? I wonder if it could be that. I mean, it could be, like, maybe if you have pre-existing health conditions, it it doesn't account for that. You know what I mean? Warning, consult the your doctor before ingesting the thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, I would, I love if, like, internally the thing's like, hey, do you have a heart condition? Because you need to tell me if you have a heart condition. <laughs> yeah, because I'm not going to survive in this body long if you die. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's freakish and so well designed by Botine and his team. Um, they almost killed everybody with that with that sequence. Mm -hmm. uh, when the thing when the head's pulling off and like all that green shit, which the green shit freaks me out more than anything. I don't know why. Especially uh, the little like bubble pus thing, the pus bubbles or whatever. Yeah. That was like, you know, what like melted plastic and like some to toxic paint that apparently was very flammable. And when they lit up the fire in the background, uh, the whole damn thing exploded. And uh, they had to extinguish that and uh, go again because the prop was was gone. Yeah, because apparently I guess they said they actually had like a leak and like they said they smelt something, but they were like, oh, it's it's nothing. Yeah. And they, then lit, they, lit, they lit a fire rod in a room full of toxic fumes and they were surprised that <laughs> something happened. <laughs> I like how Botin said he kind of stood there first because he was in disbelief of what was happening. And Carver was like, don't just stand there, stupid. Take it out. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. You know, they were doing shit no one had ever done before. So they, you know, they didn't really know how this was going to, how this was going to play out. But, you know, they used hydraulics, they used jello, they used plastic, they, anything they had. And, you know, the, the end result Lube. speaks for itself. Awesome. Lube. Yeah, lots of lube. Yeah, they lubed up, you know, got to be ready to go. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, luckily everyone survived and we get this great scene out of it. Yeah. All right, awesome. Uh, let's talk about the dogs. Uh, oh, oh, boy. That, oof. so to start kind of the horror section of this movie off, you know, off with literally like torturing a bunch of Huskies. That's going to upset people. And a lot of the letterbox reviews I read that didn't like this movie were like, why did all the dogs have to die? Half a star. And you fucking babies. But still, I get it. Look, I, 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 look, I get it when it comes to like children and animals and films. I myself, I know you have your cat. Mm -hmm. I myself have my cat and my dog. I don't like seeing it, but I'm not going to dislike a movie because of fucking animal dog, especially because guess what? It's not cannibal Holocaust. It's fake. Yeah. Fake dog. Actual, the actual, yeah. Fake dogs were killed. Real dogs survived and went back to their owners to live happy lives. But what a way to bring this monster home and show us what this thing is. I mean, to have its husky oh. head rip open and start pulling other dogs in with its fucking tendrils. Oh my God. Oh yeah, I did. I did legitimately feel bad. I was like, "Oh, those poor dogs." Oh no. <laughs> yeah. And, ugh. God. God. And yeah, dude. The the look of it when like 
they go to see what all the ruckus is about with the dogs, and you just see that thing for what it is, and you're like, oh my god. And I love their disbelief of just like, what the hell are we looking at right now? Yeah, they start shooting at it, as you would. And they start shooting the dogs, and that one guy, Clark, is like, no, I felt bad for him. He's like, my dogs. Like, oh. So all he had was his dogs. Yeah. Jesus. And again, the only non- yeah. The only one that was not a thing that died by one of our characters because he gets shot by McCready real quick. Well, now it's like the dogs are infected and they got to kill the dog. So that way, if they see any dogs running around, they know it's a monster. Yeah. I as far as I've seen, take the dogs out. And plus, the dogs Kurt Russell shot or clearly needed to be part of their unfortunate misery because they were entangled in whatever the fuck that thing was. The kindness. Also, Jed, you good boy. Well done. The whole beginning part when you're just kind of skulking around the camp, just kind of look, you know, looking around, seeing what's what. It's it's a good performance from that dog. It, it is, especially when they had to talk about how they had to get that out of the dog, mm-hmm. and um, what they had to do to get that because obviously it's a dog; it, it likes people as well trained as it is. I'm thinking about the 2020 Call of the Wild with Harrison Ford, where he has a dog buddy, and the dog buddy is a CGI nightmare the whole time. Just take the effort to train a fucking dog and you're going to get a better movie. Yeah, it's 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 not hard. Why do you think cops have a K-9 unit? Because German Shepherds are very easy to train. Dogs are easy to train if you work with them. Yep. Oh, um, I love the 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 ending where they stumble onto the, the thing's uh, spaceship that he's been building the whole movie because Blair was was a thing probably from the start. And oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, did when he like digs his fingers into Gary's face. Oh yeah, Gary got it rough. <laughs> oh god. I oh. like how I like how it because there's a good chance he was the thing the whole time. That scene when he was like trying to convince him to go back to the camp. Hey, come on, McCree. I I feel better now. I, I really want to go back with you guys. I'm like, did you was that was that Blair or was that the thing trying to go back to like help assimilate more? It's so stunted, it feels like like the thing trying to mimic human emotion, but it can't quite do it. Because it does feel like, you know, hey, I'm cold mm-hmm. and I want to come back inside. Like, it could just be an emotionless doctor, you know, kind of coping, but it could also be just the thing doesn't know how to appeal with empathy. <laughs> yeah. It, it, again, the movie is just so well-crafted that you start to, upon a rewatch, you question, like, almost all of the scenes. They're like, is that actually the person? Or was that the thing mimicking a person? I don't know. I mean, they could be all infected from the start. It just, you know, yeah, maybe, right? yeah, maybe the thing doesn't react to blood. It just chose that moment just, you know, to fuck with them. Yeah. It, oh, it's fucking crazy. Oh, one thing I want to highlight that I like thinking of the thing and infecting people when they have to kill Benning's. That scene has always been a favorite of mine when like they go out there, they see him running and they go out there. And before you see his hands, you see him look. And you know immediately with by his like the very dead eyes he has that it's not him anymore. What's crazy is you kind of get a hint of like this thing has to take time to transform into someone. Because when you see it makes this noise, it can't even do his voice yet. It's just it's alien voice. And then you see its hands and it's still working on making the hands human. It, oh god. And the way Kurt Russell just like calmly tips over the, the canister of gasoline and tosses the flare there to burn him 
Yeah. Yeah, that was vicious. That was that was creepy. Props to uh the guy who plays Bennings, his name escapes me at the moment, but he really sold it in that moment. Like I believe that was not Bennings. Yeah. Oh my god. And then that inhuman scream it does as it's like at them all. <laughs> I I've, that scene has always stuck out to me. It's just like holy shit, what are they dealing with? Scene that always creeped me out was so it was the subtlety of it. It's when um the uh I think it was it was Richard Dysart was exp- or it might have been Blair was looking at the uh like the cells and how it was replicating human cells and w- he was learning about it and he he did like a uh a simulation and it's like total human population infected in like forty eight hours and it was like Jesus Christ just the the implications of all that and the music and just realizing like this thing's apocalyptic. Like that was, that was terrible. Yeah. yeah. Like if this thing leaves this fucking Island, essentially, because Antarctica is essentially an Island. Um, the human race is fucked. Yeah. We can't fight this. We can't fight something that can infect all organic life. It touches like, this is it. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. It, oh God. Um, I think I had. Oh yeah, and then um, I've uh towards the end, I've always enjoyed the little showdown we get with McCready and the thing, especially his line when it like screams at him. He goes, "Yeah, fuck you too," and tosses the dynamite at it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's great. Although it did seem like all it wanted to do was leave, you know, like. In the prequel, it like tries to get back in the spaceship and start that up. And this one, it tried to build its own spaceship and get out. Like, I feel like it just wanted to leave Earth. Maybe they should have just let it do that. Maybe. But then the question is, would it have brought more? You know what I mean? Like, mm. oh, now, now that I know about this planet, we have a planet we can sustain ourselves on. I always got the feeling that this wasn't a life form. It was like a, a, like a, almost like a weapon of mass destruction like created by some race to like destroy a planet overnight. Yeah. Uh, I, there's a lot of really cool theories around this. I did like, I think even Carl said he designed it as the idea of like, it's something that is, and it's in the, in the, uh, I mean, it's in the movie. I think they actually mentioned in lines of dialogue. It's trying to get out. It's in, it's a to it. And it's in an alien war to it. And it's doing anything it can to survive. Yeah, it's the ultimate evolutionary killer. <laughs> yeah, and I think that was a smart way to go about it. Because um, they talk about the bones, they had some deaths they cut or redid that they were like, this thing isn't going out just straight up killing people to kill people. It is trying to survive. This isn't like the alien, you know, it's not the alien, right? Mm-hmm. It's trying to survive. It's doing whatever it can. And when it feels threatened, yes, it's going to kill you. But if it doesn't, it's just going to try to escape unnoticed. Yeah. Its priority is survival above all else. Like, yeah, it's frightening. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to to move on. Um, let's take a look at what the people of Letterboxd have to say about this movie on our final segment, What's in the Box? What's in the fucking box? Give me the gun. The Thing is I believe the highest rated film on or highest rated horror film on Letterboxd with a 4.4 4 out of 5. Woo. <laughs> That's high price. 
That is very high praise. It's a solid five out of five for me. I hope that goes without saying. Yeah, but I'm, I'm sure there's some, before it'd be a 4.4, that means there's some contrarians out there. Oh, yeah. I have five reviews, all half a star. Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah. This first one's from Commander Ty. The Thing is a terrible movie that should never have been made, and I give it a one out of 100. It's awful. Everything about it is awful. Even the title. There are, no, there are no redeeming qualities in this movie whatsoever, and it is a stain on the history of cinema. Jesus Christ. Tell me how you really feel without actually giving me solid reasons on how you feel that way. Yeah, I'm not hearing any, like, what are the... What's so irredeemable about it? What's so awful about it? I just, I feel like there's... This screams contrarian. Like, everyone loves it, so I have to hate it, or I'm not the smartest guy in the room. Yeah, you're contrarian or like that guy that gets really offended by stuff easily. Like he got offended by the the shocking amount of violence in this movie and was like, how dared they? Yeah. One of the two. Ugh, both of those people can go fuck themselves. Uh, this one's from Louis38. The film that made me realize I hated alien films. I think I could fart out a more scintillating film. Why on God's green earth did I watch a German shepherd explode? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's a that's an interesting sentence. Why was I actually happy when the base blew up and more of the cast were killed off? Antarctica's tourism board should sue <laughs> because they made it look as interesting as being locked in a telephone box with someone who loves Shoreditch House too much, a.k.a. dull, 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 dull. Not even a Johnny Polar Bear cameo could save this snooze fest. I don't know who Johnny Polar Bear is. I don't know if that is a I, reference to something. I have two two things I'd like to say. Yeah. <laughs> one, he doesn't know his dog breeds. They're not German Shepherds. I have a one that's mixed with lab, so I think I'm a little bit of an authority on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, these are Huskies, and in some cases, Melamuts. Breeds are actually designed to withstand in those kind of conditions. In case you want any history there, dumbass letterbox man. Or gal, you know, 2024, how you identify is how you identify. Yeah. Um, the other thing, how much tourism do you think is happening in Antarctica? Like I said at the top of this show, the only people going there are literally the type you see in this movie, scientists. that are stationed there to do fucking science shit, to do research. That's it. I I love that this guy thinks that like you can price line a Antarctic circle trip. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason Metallica is the only band that's played there for that weird gimmick they decided to do. Well, there's your tour there's your tourism board thing, you know. Home of Metallica or something. Yeah. Uh, that's I don't know if you remember that when they when they played there so they could say they played all seven continents. I was like no one cares if you played in Antarctica, Metallica. No one gives a shit. Um, Metalla, Metallartica. Metallartica, right? Yeah. That's all I got for that. Like, he he gets the breed of the dog wrong. So how much do you really like dogs, buddy? Can't even get the breed right. And, yeah, you're not bo- this, you're not booking fucking flights to Antarctica. It's not a tourism area. That's, that's so... Yeah, this guy's insane. This one... Had me laughing so hard. This is from Christopher Nolan Simp. So 
One of your favorite. You 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 picked this on purpose, you fucking bastard. I actually didn't look at the name till just now. I picked this because of the content, but the name just icing on the cake. So no, I didn't. <laughs> Son of a bitch. I can't. I already know everything I need to about this guy <laughs> with that title. So please fucking continue with this I, douchebag. I can't believe they ripped off Dead Space. John Carpenter is an unoriginal, untalented hack. And my favorite part of this is the comment that was left behind, which is, I didn't know John Carpenter had a time machine. Oh, God. Thank you. Someone commented with that. Oh, my. (laughs) I hope this guy's trolling. I hope he's trolling, because if not, he's one of the stupidest human beings on the planet. Yes, because, look, hey, I have a story on this, too, because I've actually played all three of the Dead Space games, and I I played some of the remake. Ha ha. Which was really, really good. It was just more like time. So th- I didn't finish it, not because I was hating it. It's a fucking great remake. Time. Time was the issue. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, one, Dead Space originally came out in 2008 and was actually, yes, heavily inspired by John Carpenter. The, the, the guys who made the game very much talked about that John Carpenter influence when they were making the game. So that was there, but they also talk about things like Event Horizon and Alien, other actual movies of aliens in fucking space. Because the first game's in fucking space on a spaceship. Um, twenty years after the movie, that's the that's the big one. Yeah, that's the big one. But also, again, if we're going to play, fucking can't get my ears right. I'm going to play semantics on you, asshole. It wasn't until Dead Space three. That they actually went to a frozen tundra of a planet. And that was one they were heavily inspired by John Carpenter's thing. But also, guess what? That's also when the series went dormant because people fucking hated Dead Space 3. Because that's when the horror went away in favor of like action um, shit. And then the series went dormant until the recent remake came out and brought it back in full force. So yeah, one, get your shit. Like, dude, like this film came out well before the Dead Space games. And actually, let's bring this shit full circle. Guess who, if he could direct a film again, if he was interested in directing a film again, guess what film he'd like to do? Mr. John Carpenter. A Dead Space movie. Because he's a massive fan of the Dead Space games. He has talked about that ad nauseum, how much he loves the Dead Space games. He thinks they're like some of the greatest video games we've gotten in the horror realm. So bringing that full circle, dumbass. Not you, the letterbox guy. I, um, I'm well aware you're not. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> yeah. So one, get your get your years when things come out right, stupid. And also like pick the right game. Say Dead Space 3. Be somewhat smart. It's it blows my mind when people do that. They like, you know, call something a ripoff of something that came out decades after that first thing. <laughs> That's so yeah. amazingly stupid. Yeah, like how, and then you get the the wrong semantic, you know, semantics on this one, the wrong game in that franchise mentioned. No, and then that final coffin. Carpenter himself is a huge fan of those games. Now <laughs> he loves those games. Well, unless it's Christopher Nolan, uh, this dude will suck no other director's nuts. So apparently, I so I know he liked the boring shit show that was Dunkirk, and probably can tell you why Tenet's a piece of art. Dunkirk was pretty good. That's kind of just you. I know. I that movie is boring. I enjoyed Dunkirk. 
Um, it's fucking boring. I didn't really like Tenet that much. Okay, this one's from Jade. I know, I know, I know a lot of even like those hardcore fans didn't like that one that much. I didn't bother watch it, but I haven't heard good things from almost like anyone. Maybe the the simp there does like it though. I didn't look at his reviews, but I bet they're all there's no one movies being like the greatest thing ever. Oh my god. Um, it's from Jade. I made it 29 minutes in. There were no women and a bad dog. This movie is Satan's work. Ooh. Now we're talking. People don't make sense. You're posting a review after you didn't finish the movie. You still had like a whole hour and 20 to go. Um, so you didn't finish the movie. You you stopped because there was no women in it, which is a shallow one, a shallow thing too. They didn't at that time send female scientists over there. I believe it's kind of like how, for the longest time Navy ships were are all male until they finally started letting you know females join. It's kind of like the boys' club. One real quick, one thing I did want I did forget to mention. Um, there is a female in this movie, and it's the chess computer. Do you know who voices the chess computer? No, Adrian oh, Barbeau. Oh. oh, nice. Yeah, who was uh, Carpenter's wife at the time? So that's right. That's right. They were married. <laughs> yeah, there is there is a a woman. Yeah, one shallow reason too. I I want to say accurate for that time when they were sending people like scientists over there to do stuff in Antarctica. Um, I'm sure it was. I'm sure back then it was primarily a boys' club. I'm sure. Um. And yeah, Jesus Christ. Main thing is like finish the movie before you fucking review it. You God, you pieces of shits that do that. They did. Yeah, and say how what? No women, so say I I what? <laughs> Every movie that has no women and a bad dog was sent here by the devil. I mean, that's just common knowledge. We all know that. Apparently. Uh <laughs> oh, Jade, I bet you're fun at parties. Uh and this last one, just I get it, but also no, it's a, all right. This is from Cool Person Thirteen, and I guarantee you, no, you're not. I doubt he is. If you have to call yourself that for your handle, you're not. Three words, way too scary. Half a star. That's not very cool of you. Also, that's the point. It's a horror movie. If you got scared, that means it's doing it right. Half a star. Yeah. You can't handle this movie. That's that's kind of that's low. Yeah. Also, if this is the thing that you think is way too scary, stop watching horror films. Yeah, I don't get that. I don't get people who attack horror films for being too scary, but they keep going. Like if it's not for you, stay out, you know, go home, find another nightclub for, for you that could handle. you know, if you if this was SpongeBob. Go to Weenie Hut Juniors. That's where you belong. <laughs> Those super Weenie Hut Juniors. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to go to Weenie Hut. They don't want you there. Go to Super Weenie Hut. You, Look, can't, if... you can't hang at the Salty Spittoon with the rest of us. You can't. No. You know what? Go to Weenie Hut Junior. If you watch horror film, then you found, yeah, this isn't for me. I got scared. Because at least you have some fucking self-respect to be like, no, I'm not going to keep watching these. They scare me. Then go to Weenie Huts. I can respect you on that. Go to Superini Hut if you are that person that knows you're scared, but you keep going back to them and complaining that you that's got the, scared. That's the part. 
complaining. If you keep watching horror films and you're super scared by them, but you keep trying to get, cause you want to, you know, you want to play go nuts, keep doing that. But when you start bitching about the fact that you're too scary, then you're going to alienate people and we don't want to talk to you. Yeah. Like, look, if, I know plenty of people and, um, you know, me being on the dating apps, you know, I've talked to someone that like have, I've matched with right. And they're like, Oh, I see you're really in the scary movies. I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I am a big scary movie buff. I, you know, I usually joke like tattoos, not to, you know, say enough, you know, you know, a little joke. Right. Um, and they'll say it. They'll be like, "Hey, I'm kind of scared of them, but I have no issues watching them." So I'm, also I'm like, I I'm not gonna be that guy's like, "Huh, they're not for me," because you can't handle scary me. Like you said, like there's plenty of people that like, if they are scared, they'll find ways to watch it. And like I said, it's the complaining part that's like, like then stop watching it. Um, but if you can find ways, like I said, like some people, hey, I can't I can't do it alone, but I can watch scary me with someone. Fine, cool. Then, you know, have a buddy to watch it with, have a date to watch it with, right? I know some people that, like, hey, I, you know, I can watch them, but also I can't do it if I know I'm going to be um, alone at the house at night, right? You see that with some couples. Okay, cool. You know how to approach watching them then and when not to fucking watch. Again, that's being an adult. That's being smart. I... It's when you do it and, like we said, you complain. Then it's like, all right, shut the hell up. We don't want you. <laughs> I don't get people who, like, try to minimize the chances they're going to get scared you know if i'm going to watch a horror movie especially something i've never seen before i'm watching it at night i'm you know turning off the lights i'm i'm trying to well, I the same thing. increase the chances that you're going to feel something from this yeah yeah i, I do it all the time that's how you know i found out the waters really affected me from um this past year because i was like all right let me do what i do you know i wait till night i turn all the lights off you know minus the led backlights i have for my tv um and i I actually think I picked a day that like Josh was like seeing his kid. So I had to place it myself as well. Um, and I watched it and yeah, I knew that should affect me when I was quick to turn lights on. I was like, all right, turn some lights on. Fuck. I was like, what the hell did I just watch? What the hell is going on? The last time I had to do that was when I watched anything for Jackson. That scene with the giant ghost oh, really got yeah. in skit. <laughs> Trick or treat. Goddamn. Woo. Oh yeah. <laughs> Look, look, look. Well, lessons, you know, I and I'm sure you feel to me. Not everyone's a massive horror fan. Like, I understand not everyone's like me that has fucking tattoos, t shirts, board games, fucking energy drink, energy drinks, like that lives and breathes it quite like I do. Or, you know, like, like yourself that loves, you know, really enjoys these too. So, if you're, if you're going to get scared, but keep watching these, and then, like we said, complain. Get the fuck out. I don't want to deal with you. But if you do, if you know there's, if you at least recognize, hey, these scare me, but I have ways to watch it to make it less so that I can handle it. Cool with that. If that's watching with a friend, watching with someone, you know, maybe having like a nightlight or something at the very least, or like LED backlights on your TV or something, then that's cool. I'm not going to judge you for that. You, you, you're. You're trying to still watch these things and not deny yourself that, but you're also recognizing being an adult and recognizing like, hey, I know if I do it this way, I'm gonna be scared shitless and won't be able to go to bed afterwards. Cool. Like you're you're finding a way to still enjoy this without bitching, without complaining and being that person. The complainer, it's like it's like somebody who can't handle spicy food. And they're aware of this. 
but they keep coming with you to B dubs and ordering the hottest shit on the menu and then complaining that the stuff they're ordering is too hot. Like, you know what you can handle, get mild or leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, look, I'm going to be, I'll tell you right now, I get the mild shit. Why? Because I know I don't want to gorge on the hot shit because I can only take so much from like, I'm done. I'm not going to finish this. But even if you do order the hot stuff, you did that. It's nobody else's fault. Yeah. Yeah. Again, how you react tells me how much I'm going to deal with you because we're adults here. Let's act like it. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. God damn it. We're adults. Accountability is the name of the fucking game. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a good place to wrap things up. Uh, that's our show. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you like what we do, feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and X at Filmgasm Productions. Twitter. Twitter. If you want to see the website formerly known as Twitter, if you want to suggest films for us to check out. Fuck you, you, fuck you Elon Musk. It's Twitter. You can email us at filmgasm at gmail.com or send us a message through the socials. That's Facebook, Instagram, or X. Twitter. Check check out our our Letterboxd accounts for daily reviews. You can search for me at Connor95 in my friends list. You can find the rest of the team. Check out our website, filmgasm.com, where I have a link to that Letterboxd. If you want to read reviews, you can also find articles, trailers of upcoming films, and every episode of every phase of our show. If you'd like to become a monthly donor to Filmgasm Productions, feel free to click on the link in the episode description. From there, click on Support This Podcast. You can choose to donate a dollar a month, $5 a month, or $10 a month. All donations go right back into the show, and we appreciate it. Thanks to the entire Filmgasm team for their contributions. Thanks to Cooley Cow for our awesome theme music, and thanks to you for sticking it out this far. I recently calculated all the shit we've ever done. If you count from day one of the podcast to now, this is the 668th episode of the show. <laughs> How fucking one. beautiful is that? Yeah, that's nice. But also... Ep- Episode one of the revamp of the reboot of the reimagining of the retooling of the show. Yeah. Part five. That's right. Episode one. The and, final, uh, final chapter. <laughs> Probably. I don't see us changing face again. I think this is this is it. <laughs> we're we're gonna just see this through till we all get tired of it. Homegasm reborn. There you go. Uh next week. I'm making good on a promise I made back in November. Now that the bride has crossed Oren Ishii and Vernita Green off her list, she takes on the sadistic L driver and the lonely shit kicker Bud, all culminating in her long-awaited confrontation with the man who took everything from her, Bill. We go back into the ultra-violent world of Quentin Tarantino with 2004's Kill Bill Volume 2. If you want to hear our thoughts on the first volume, check out the episode we did on it this past November. Tune in next week for a deep dive on the second volume. Super excited when we did Kill Bill 1. Felt incomplete. Like, we only did half the movie because we did. So, we're going to rectify that. Knock out Kill Bill 2 next week. Talk more Tarantino, Uma Thurman, David Carradine. It's going to be fun. Uh, I'm super excited for the future of this podcast. And I'm looking forward to all the awesome films we've got on the calendar. Take it easy. Keep watching movies. We'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.